1: Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers of Feminine Rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy.
2: I'm Rocco.
3: And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female-identifying killers in horror and more.
1: Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers, from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines.
3: We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her?
4: Join us on Thursdays
1: as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast.
5: Yet.
4: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. I'm an adjunct loser and a co-host of a new podcast called Space the Nation. I've been covering politics for over 20 years. My co-host, Dan Dresner, is a professor of international relations at Tufts University, and we're both huge science fiction nerds. So our podcast is about the politics in science fiction, how characters and plot lines deal with power structures and alliances, economic forces, and class struggles, and how these events reflect historical events and are explained by real political theory. We also do some serious fan-personing. If you're a Stephen King fan listening to a two-hour Stephen King podcast, I think you'll like it. We just finished recapping The Expanse Season 5, and now we're moving on to look at things like Ender's Game, Alien, and The Left Hand of Darkness. If you're interested, you can find out more on patreon.com slash nation, or you can get us wherever you get your podcast. See you there.
2: My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you, but if you want to make love, then
5: I do too, and I'll be right there behind you.
3: Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Summer's here, not just summer either, Matt, this year, but the apotheosis of summer, the (laughs) avatar of summer, high green, perfect central Ohio summer, dead smash in the middle of July. That's right, constant listeners, today we are here to discuss The Regulators, one of the doggone weirdest books in King's long career. If you missed it, scroll further down our feed to find both our episodes. We got two on its mirror book, quote unquote, Desperation, and stay tuned for an episode devoted to the sticky glue that binds them. Before we get started, however, let's introduce our panel of suburban yokels uh jen say hello and tell us about your first encounter with the regulators
1: hi this is jen to the rage adams and i this is my third read of regulators i read this i think when it came out and i remember going to the bookstore and seeing that there were two and i can't remember exactly why i picked regulators but um I think because it seemed more kind of action oriented and I guess it reminded me of power Rangers or something. (laughs) So I like, or the synopsis grabbed me or something, but so I read this and then I just never went back and read desperation until I did my chronological reread a couple. And I got to this a couple of years ago. So I read it again then. Um, And then, so this is my third time through. And I, you know, I, I, I think I like this book. Um, I don't know. Are we? Do we want to talk about our feelings about it? Yeah, right now I think just... I think
3: the, I think the broad level broad level feelings I think are good.
1: Okay, so I like. I, it's hard to say I like this book because there are some things in this book that absolutely appall me that I really hate. Um, but I think the broad strokes of this book and the theme that I think King is going for, especially in connection with the re- with desperation, I think I find more accessible. Um, because I think that because it is a Bachman book, there's a coldness there. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the Desperation episode, I talked about how some of it is just, it's too emotional for me to really want to engage with. And I don't really find much of that emotion here. This is a really mean book. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it even says on my cover, lean and mean. And I think that's a good explanation. And those are some of the parts that I don't really like, which we'll get into. but, um, But I find the broad strokes of this, I did enjoy. Yeah. There are details that I hate that we'll talk about too. But yeah. We'll touch on them.
3: And what, <laughs> yeah. what edition did you read on this go around?
1: Well, I listened to the audiobook. Um nice. which is, and I found out it's an abridgment. As I started to do my notes, like what I do is I like make, notes on my phone and then I like check it with the text and I found like some things that were left out and some it, like a sentence here or there you know so it's kind Interesting. of weird yeah. like I feel like I've you know I read the physical book and I've listened to it so I don't feel like it's really losing much of the story I just think there's con- a little context that's missing which who, I have some who,
3: examples of who reads the audiobook
1: you remember I think it might be Frank Miller. Frank oh. Muller. It's not Frank Muller. It's a lady. Um, <laughs> I think it's Lindsey Krauss, but I'll have to check that for sure. I'll check and while cool. everyone else is talking. I'll let you know. Awesome.
3: Dan Flieger, say hello. And when did you first read The Regulators? Hey, this is Dan,
6: Mr. Warren G. Flieger. <laughs> regulators! <laughs> um, I actually read this book right after Desperation, so in 2005. Um, I have the original first edition, but this was actually my third time reading it. I did the Frank Muller, um, reading or audiobook, I should say. Oh, there are two. Huh. Yeah, no, I, that, it's so weird. I generally found that there's, I think maybe because I'm looking at less than savory websites with some of the audiobooks, but, uh, <laughs> I found, I found the audio, but I own the actual copy. So mm. sorry, Stephen C. court. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, uh, not not my favorite. I think it's funny that it's dedicated to Sam Peckinpah in the beginning of the mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. Um, because this is a blood fest.
3: Yeah. Uh, so when, how did you feel about it when you first read it back in 2005? I think I was just excited
6: because it was one of my first takes on King. Like, I read Cujo in fourth grade, didn't read any King until college, and then I just went on like a tear. Yeah. So went through the Dark Tower series, and then any book that I already owned or could get my hands on. So... I like the twinning aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, oh, that's cool. But more and more I'm like, man, I kinda wish these books were either merged together. I don't know. We'll we'll get into it on the pod, but yeah, cool. not my favorite.
3: <laughs> sure. Uh Anna, say hello and tell us how you first read The Regulators and what edition you read this time around.
4: This is Anna Marie the Maggot. The <laughs> hey. I think I'm finally come up with my come up with my standard nickname there. Um Love it. so I'm having trouble placing when I first read this. Like I've said before, like Some King was read during my height of my drinking years. So like Uh I have a very fuzzy memory of a lot of it. Um, But this book, I remember really well. In 1996 would have been... I was still relatively like functional. So um, I can't place it right away, but I do remember I read it. And I do remember I thought it was really weird then. I don't know if I... I dislike it a lot more now. (laughs) And it's funny because I'm the defender of like the weird, like trippy King, but this is the sober trippy King, which Mm -hmm. I think is maybe not as interesting. Like that's the thing about this, this book is I don't think it's interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, what we were saying before about desperation is that King is really earnest. Bachman is not earnest. Right. That's the difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's not like trying to figure something out. It's just like violence for violence's sake. And sometimes, and I feel like the gimmick is just for gimmick's sake too. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there's some stuff I think is a little bit interesting and we can talk about it, of course. Um, But I'm reading a first edition and I have a very, very funny, like, I guess, can people see like what this says?
3: Yeah. To me. To me. School
4: is life now. (laughs) (laughs) K U B. Aww. And I feel very very like sad and intrigued about that. Like <laughs> um <laughs> I, I identify. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can see actually doing that to a book myself, being like, fuck it. Like I you know, this is my book, I'm giving it to me.
3: Yeah. Um so, so wait, anyway. So that is that was in the book when you got it?
4: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh wow. Yes.
3: That's funny. To me,
4: school is <laughs> life now.
3: Maybe it's possessive
4: is <laughs> life. It uh. does say it's, well. Actually, what's funny is it has school with a like a quote mark. Yeah, like so the whole thing is like school is life now in a quote. So mm. not an English language. You know, something was happening for KUB. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was like a rough year. Yeah, so That's I awesome. do love the cover. Like I <laughs> the
3: yeah, the cover is awesome. <laughs> and you had the first edition. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, this is a uh, rockin' Randall the Cruel, Randall the Despot, Colburn. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I remember pretty vividly reading Regulators for the first time. It wasn't at the same time as Desperation, because I have like a very specific memory of reading Desperation, which I talked about in the last episode. But Regulators is a book I got from the library, I think maybe a year later or so. And I remember being really intrigued by it, um, perhaps in the same way you were, Jen, because you mentioned the idea of, like, Power Rangers, like, being an appealing thing, and I remember Mm -hmm. it was like that for me, too, because I was really intrigued, and this remains to this day, I like when, um, I like when books can, like, take really, really popular things from pop culture, like, not like old, not like, you know, with King, where it's all, like, 50s and 60s classic (laughs) rock, but, like, really modern, like, Power Rangers, like, I'd never seen children's characters like that in a in a horror novel before like Mm -hmm. that was an interesting concept to me and when I read this whole concept and I was really into violent stuff when I was young so I was really much like oh my god a bunch of crazy power rangers like come out with shotguns and just blow away this whole suburban community and I lived in a suburban community so I was like yes this is right up my alley and and yeah and that remains to this day and I remember that was sort of one thing because I'd only read it one time uh, when I was young and so revisiting it I was excited because I'm like I wonder how that stuff kind of holds up the idea that he sort of created this mini world within it of his own uh, whimsical but also violent children's world and entertainment um, and then merging that with kind of this old western it was it's just such a strange idea that really shows I think how steeped King is in pop culture and how especially at that time and and it was such a far cry from a lot of his other books, you know. Desperation is is you know in its way gloomy, and it's in the desert, and mm-hmm. and then uh, insomnia, and like Dolores Claiborne, and Gerald's Game, and Rose Matter. Like these, those were really intense thematically, and. Uh, I think I was really drawn to the playfulness of the premise. And so I remember liking it in terms of the gore descriptions are really gnarly. And, and I was really into that at the time. And I love high body counts, at least back then I did. And um, so I remember I enjoyed it for that reason. But I remember feeling a little bit confused and unsatisfied by the ending, which we'll talk about. And I think I felt pretty similar these days. But, you know, Anna, what you said about, like, I think you were just touching on the... The coldness and the meanness, Uh, Jen, you were mentioning that too. It's, I think, like, I think what stands out to me about Bachman is that I think he hates his characters like, for the yeah. most yes. part yeah, yeah. like I, I think he likes you know a couple of them maybe but he he's really judgmental and nasty about the majority of characters I especially mm-hmm. um, the women in this book I think mm-hmm. uh, he, yep. he's like, <laughs> like like the characters are so fucking mean to these mm-hmm. like people who are in the middle of a crisis and he's like stop crying you know Right. And it's just like she just saw her parents get oh, murdered oh god and those two
4: young men who are just like him getting like revenge on the jocks he messed like up. Yeah, seriously. Hated in high school. Like. Yeah,
3: the the hunky Reed boys. Um, yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah, let's let's pop and talk about the history of this book a little bit. I think that like surprise, there was actually surprisingly quite a bit of it. Um, Uh, It was released by Dutton on September 24th, 1996, alongside Desperation, uh, published under the name Richard Bachman, his pen name. Uh, This was his first Bachman book in 10 years since Thinner, and uh, it won't be his last. uh, Spoiler alert. Uh, So, uh, and then a note, there was a note at the beginning of the book that explains why we're getting a new Bachman book, and I'm going to read it for you all right now. (laughs) Before his death from cancer in late 1985, Richard Bachman published five novels. In 1994, while preparing to move to a new house, the author's widow found a cardboard carton filled with manuscripts in the cellar. These novels and stories were in varying degrees of completion. The least finished were longhand scribbles in the Steno notebooks Bachman used for original composition. The most finished was a typescript of the novel which follows. It was in a manuscript box secured with rubber bands, as if Bachman had been on the verge of sending it to his publisher when his final remission ended. The former Mrs. Bachman brought it to me uh, for evaluation, and I found it at least up to the standards of his earlier work. I have made a few small changes, mostly updating certain references, substituting Ethan Hawke for Rob Lowe in the first chapter, for instance, but have other... Otherwise, left it pretty much as I found it. This work is now offered, with the approval of the author's widow, as the capstone to a peculiar but not uninteresting career. My thanks to Claudia Eshelman, the former Claudia Bachman, Bachman scholar Douglas Winter, Elaine Coster at New American Library, and to Carolyn Stromberg, who edited the earliest Bachman novels and validated this one. The former Mrs. Bachman says that to the best of her knowledge, Bachman never traveled to Ohio, although he might have flown over it once or twice. She also has no idea when this novel was written, although she suspects it must have been late at night. Richard Bachman suffered from chronic insomnia. And that was a a message from Chuck Verrill, New York City. That's King's longtime editor. Um, So, yeah, some cheeky play uh, going on there and uh king himself actually you know kept up the ruse in a statement that was in the press materials for the book he said the most interesting thing about the regulators is that bachman and i must have been on the same psychic wavelength it's almost as if we were twins in a funny way like the reed Mm. boys so uh sure
4: like everyone knew he was bachman here yeah right like okay this reminds me i just want to say like of him being in a band like, mm-hmm. it is so self-indulgent. It is, like, yeah. so, like, he, I'm sure he was giggling the entire time, like,
3: you know, like, yeah. I'm having so much fun with this. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's part of the fun of Bachman with him, is that I think he it's finds... A, it's fun for him. Uh, I mean, right? like, I don't know exactly. if that
4: translates into fun for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, they, they
6: describe it as Stephen King without a conscience, but I'm like, uh, maybe it's Stephen King without a proper manuscript sometimes. Um, yeah. And I say that as a fan of most of the Bachman books but I think at this point maybe I don't know cat's out the bag everyone knows it's him and it sort of it doesn't hold up to some of the other yeah that (laughs) joke's not funny anymore
4: Uh, um this is it's Stephen King without an editor I mean like in a self-editor too like it's him yeah it's like no editor editor and no self-editor like yeah yeah. I I don't
6: know that you would get this published on its own if it didn't have the tie-in um to desperation right (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's like
1: a permission structure, you know, Mm -hmm. to say and do things like and if I look at desperation, like if he's writing that and there are some really heavy themes and he got tired of. The emotional labor of dealing with those things. I wonder if this was him kind of dumping a lot of the pressure off, you know, and trying to just like, well, what if I made this story as mean as possible, you know, and like getting that out of his system.
3: So, and yeah, by by all accounts, he started writing regulators literally the day after he finished Desperation. So I think it was, I like the idea of framing it as sort of a release valve kind of book, you know, like a, like just something kind of loony and violent and nutty where he was, it was like catharsis for him after unpacking his demons so thoroughly in desperation.
4: i be mean, just so indulgent though and like mm-hmm. an example yeah. of like what in a way it's the kind of thing fucking Johnny Maronville would do <laughs> like, from desperation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I'm just going to write a trash novel now. Ha ha ha. You know and yeah, I can tr- get my laundry list published so I might as well like do this. Guess, yeah.
3: yeah. Trash
4: novels I guess a good I'm, word, I'm I am clearly already annoyed. By
6: <laughs> Did you like the book Anna?
3: Right. <laughs> so this was released, obviously, in double packs with desperation with mirroring uh, artwork, which is really cool. We've talked about that. Uh, but it was it also had a 500-copy limited edition release selling for $325. And that was in 1996 money. So, um, And I didn't know about this before, but basically it was available on a first-come, first-served basis via phone order. Each copy contained a fake check signed by the non-existent Bachman, each made out to a friend or associate of King's or one of his fictional characters for instance one check was made out to the overlook connection an independent bookstore specializing in all things king Another was made out to Quitters Inc., the anti-smoking organization mm-hmm. immortalized in King's short story of the same name. The book came in a cloth-covered box featuring artist Alan M. Clark's conception of a power wagon, the vehicles driven by the regulators. So if you are one of our fans and you have one of those fancy copies, uh, please post a photo of it to our socials. We'd love to see it. Um, Lord knows I did not have $325 in 1996 to spend nope. on books. <laughs> <laughs> um the book is dedicated to Jim Thompson and Sam Peckinpah. He says, "Legendary Shadows." Sam Peckinpah, the uh, filmmaker, uh, you know, the Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, um, a lot of Western, very violent. Jim Thompson, uh, the writer behind *The Killer Inside Me*, which is kind of a classic, uh, cult classic book, and also very violent. So, obvious, you know, the uh, the influences are pretty obvious here. And there's a deeper connection to Peckinpah. But before that, are you? Are, do we have any fans of Peckinpah Thompson on the pod? Uh, deep fans uh, m- my dad <laughs> um, when, I,
6: when i was growing up my dad would always be like this is the most gory movies and i think it's just it's a little dated like i appreciate them um but i lean more toward the sergio leone type yeah. westerns uh Pot. like you said kind of a high body count but yeah I, I don't know if it ages as well it's definitely got respect for him like good good director but just maybe of his time
3: sure yeah, I was never. Um, I've seen Straw Dogs, but I've not seen Wild Bunch. Uh, so I've got I've got some blind spots when it comes to that. And Thompson, I've never read, but I have some oh. friends who are very into him. Oh. You
4: Thompson is Killer Inside Me, especially, and also it involves a psychopathic sheriff, as I recall. Mm. Mm. Like that's the main character. Yeah, is a you know it's a portrait of a sociopath. Like it's told yeah. in first person, sociopath, and um, yeah, I would if you. It's it's a classic for a reason. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I know um, they made a
3: film, like, maybe a decade ago or something with uh, Casey Affleck. I'm going to double check.
4: I'm going to double yeah. check that it's a sheriff, but I'm pretty sure. Was yeah, it I think... Rob,
6: Rob Lowe also?
4: Or... <laughs> King loves just, Rob Lowe. Just, on that point, you though, know. I was going
6: to say, with uh, Parks and Rec, I guess Rob Lowe could have been updated in the new one because he kind of had a resurgence. Yes, it yeah. is
4: a West
3: Texas deputy sheriff ah. who is the
4: titular
3: sociopath. So yeah, that makes some sense there. Uh, but yeah, the Peckinpah dedication is interesting because The Regulators was born in part from a screenplay called The Shotgunners that King had written in the late 70s uh, that he then worked on with Peckinpah. Uh, he was doing some revisions based on Peckinpah's notes, but Peckinpah died in 1984 while the script was in revision, so the project never happened. Um, I have a quote here from King. He said, The truth is I had a screenplay long before I met Sam, which was towards the end of his life. We talked at the UN Plaza and Kirby McCallum was there because he had set up the meeting. Sam was looking for a picture to make, and I had this screenplay that was called The Shotgunners, which I had for a long time and went back something like five years. It was one of these feverish things that I'd written in about a week. I really like it, but there was not interest in it. Sam read it, liked it a lot, and suggested some things for the script that were really interesting. I thought that I could go back and do a second draft. Unfortunately, Sam died about three months later, and I never worked on the script. First off, how... King was at the height of his... Like, I mean, the late 70s, and he had a screenplay, an original screenplay, and nobody wanted to produce it. It must have been really bad. <laughs> That's just all I think. I'm just like, you'd think they would be scooping that up at that time. Right. But, um, Do you but, think yeah. maybe
6: if it didn't have the book attached, like they wanted book sales for a built-in mm. audience, and if it was just a standalone screenplay,
3: they were still a little wary? That might be true. That might be true. Um, I mean, yeah. he
1: can't really write dialogue very well. I, mean, <laughs> I love him, but I don't like his dialogue, so it could just be that he softened, it. He, he rounded children's out children's dialogue references. pretty well. But,
4: yeah, like, that's true. I can't... That, that is I can... true, yeah.
3: But you know, we've all seen sleepwalkers, so. <laughs> yeah.
4: If we did a King, um, like King, you know, high off his nut um, <laughs> uh, episode, I think you'd have to do what's the gas station one? Maximum Overdrive. Oh, oh yeah.
5: yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, and when I say I don't think he writes dialogue that well, like, I think. It's when the dialogue is on a screen and I don't get all of the background information about the thought processes. That's when it stands out to me. Because I agree. And I think he does write children's dialogue very well. But we just lose a lot of, I think, what makes the dialogue make, gives the dialogue context, you know? So if- Yeah, we talked about
3: that on the last stand episode uh, because he wrote that one and how, you know, a lot of his dialogue (laughs) just works better on the page, like inherently, you know? Yeah. So- Yeah, so, um, King's Story was also modeled in part after and Paws' The Wild Bunch. Both have a character named Major Pike. One can also draw a line between regulators and Jerome Bixby's It's a Good Life, the story of a child who controls reality, made famous by The Twilight Zone, and its 1983 movie. Um... Classic story, obviously. As for this particular book, King came up with the idea near the three-quarter mark of desperation. According to the complete Stephen King universe, he jotted down a single word on a scrap of paper, regulators, and slapped it on the side of his printer. At the time, he only knew it had something to do with toys, guns, TV, and suburbia. Clearly, however, it evolved into something that mashed together a number of disparate ideas. And he talked about that in an interview, um, just the general idea that I think he had a couple loose kind of clanging ideas in his head, specifically from this screenplay, and was like, let's take them, bundle them into a sack, put them in this book. And uh, of course, that doesn't always result in the best thing uh, and a lot of indulgence, as we've said many times. So, um, And then I have this brief quote uh, that he wrote in an essay uh, about Bachman that he wrote Around the time of regulators, and we're going to talk more about this in the next episode. But I'll just read this quote uh, to help illuminate, sort of, you know, the connection that exists between desperation and regulators. So he said. Then, an even more exciting idea struck me. If I could use the rep company concept with the characters, I could use it with the plot itself. I could stack a good many of the desperation elements in a brand new configuration and create a kind of mirror world. I knew even before setting out on this course that plenty of critics would call this twinning a stunt, and they would not be wrong, exactly. But I thought it would be a good stunt. A good stunt. Maybe even an illuminating stunt. One which showcased the muscularity and versatility of story, its all but limit, limitless ability to adapt a few basic elements into endlessly pleasing variations it's prankish charm. And uh, just to add context to the repertory company idea, he said um, that he used the characters from Desperation like the members of a repertory company acting in two different plays. Um, And yeah, so then we had, then he did that with the plot as well. And uh, the final bit of history here is this has never been adapted, uh, but King did tweet in 2014 that Regulators was being considered as a TV series at the time, but nothing has come of that thus far. Do you guys think would make a good tv show
1: yeah i think so it it feels like i think i mean you'd have to change a lot of details but like it seems paced well i think i could see it going for about eight episodes and also i could see it expanding yeah
4: i think it'd be a good limited series i think Mm -hmm. that its flaws would not be as obvious in a series and i think you'd have to slim it down in a way that would probably be useful you'd probably have less poop (laughs) uh yeah no i actually i I, I think
6: (laughs) this might have actually worked better as like a mini series than a book versus desperation which i think works better as a book than the tv movie um yeah i I think some of the visuals and the fighting and the action would have been better realized on screen than on page here Mm -hmm. yeah
4: well it makes me wonder looking for um fan art of this book because i actually had trouble conceptualizing some of like the dream floaters, like I kept mm-hmm. on trying to like picture, like what is he actually talking about here? So did you find it, There's not a lot. Really? There, there's not a lot of fan <laughs> art for yeah, it. Yeah, no. I,
6: it. I was, I kept pulling back to with uh, Power Rangers, which when mm-hmm. Randall, I think me and you were about the same age, like third, yeah. fourth grade when it was on TV, and sort of a take on Voltron. So every time they talk about Moto Cops, I was visualizing the Power Rangers. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it never quite got there for me. And now mm-hmm. I kind of want to look up the fan art. I'm sure there's like a Deviant Art site with like. <laughs> I don't know, some horrible images,
3: but... It See, is funny, I... yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jen.
1: I actually kind of have the op i had an easier time visualizing a lot mm. of this and because i'm not a visual reader and so that's part of why i struggle with the dark tower series is because when i'm having to create original scenery or things based on the text i get really i i have a hard time doing that but here i feel like every visual is so grounded in something i've already seen or it's described it's like close enough to power rangers or clo- like i know what a cactus looks like even yeah. if it doesn't make sense in the scene i can plonk it in there whereas I'm not having to create as much. And that might be part of why I liked it more, you know? Yeah. It's funny, like I feel like
4: the background stuff actually is really well done. Like I actually love the the sort of depiction of the child's drawing come to life Mm -hmm. parts of it. It's really literally the dream floaters that I was like, wait, what is he? I don't (laughs) know.
3: No, I agree with that.
4: It's not completely fleshed out either, I think. Like, yeah. Like, he things. knew exactly what he was talking about. Right. So. Like, we
1: can't actually watch this show, Steve. Like, we... Yeah. You know, it's not, <laughs> you know... You had to tell uh, us a little bit.
3: Yeah. A few quotes from King on Regulators. He said, I used to have these activity books that I played with on rainy days when I was a kid. They had this trick where you could get an interesting look at your face, a different look of your face, by placing a mirror perpendicular to half of your face. It makes a reflection that is a whole face. In a way, that is what the regulators in desperation are. He also uh, had this quote about Richard Bachman that I thought was interesting. He said, Obviously, I'm Richard Bachman, and when I write as Richard Bachman, it opens this part of my mind. It's like this hypnotic suggestion where I become my idea of who Richard Bachman is. It frees me to be somebody who is a little bit different. In a way... The Regulators in Desperation are really different books. However, that makes, what makes them interesting isn't the differences, but the similarities. And we can talk more about that later because I'm not sure. Um, so. Uh, it's so weird to
6: hear his own words, though, like the freedom, limitless, endless. Yeah. You know, he makes it sound like he can do whatever he wants. And I actually, I don't think this is as big of a swing as maybe he's placing it.
4: Sure. Um,
6: yeah. Like, I think he, it would actually have been better if he would have went just
3: hog wild.
4: I wonder where this is sort of in his sobriety journey, because he relapses at some point in the late 90s, right?
3: Oh, if I he does, I'm that. not sure, yeah.
4: I'm trying to remember. There's a relapse that's relatively, like, he relapsed around, you know, whatever, the big accident, like, that's... Yeah. Um, Because this is real, like, not humble thinking, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. The humility is maybe he wasn't hitting as many meetings as you should. I don't mean, this is like me projecting a little bit, but like mm-hmm. I agree that him thinking how hot shit this is, <laughs> like is really off-putting. Like I was actually, so like I said, we did I did a discussion about Ender's Game recently and the Orson Scott Card introduction to Ender's Game almost ruins it <laughs> because he fucking loves that book and thinks yeah. it's really special and talks about how important it is and how many children write him about how they see themselves in it. When I'm like, that's not necessarily good, Orson. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) like and King's intros generally are pretty humble yeah like it's very true he really sort of sees himself as a servant of his own writing most of the time obviously yeah when he writes that he does not see him as a himself as a servant of his muse like yeah anyway
1: yeah I think is interesting because he's not writing as like he's writing as Bachman and so I guess he sees Bachman as not that you know Mm -hmm. which is why I don't like his Bachman books as much
3: yeah, you know, it's interesting that we bring all that up because this was his era of gimmickry. Like, he did, he re- the same year he released uh, Green Mile in, you know, multiple installments, um, sort of channeling Dickens in that way. And then he also, this was around the time that he kind of, you know, in a way, pioneered the ebook industry by releasing *Writing the Bullet*, and then also was doing *The Plant*, uh, which he was releasing online in segments, so long as people paid for it. Um, and then, of course, he stopped because people weren't paying for it. Which I will always say—I've talked about this before. It was, as me, I was really young at the time, I didn't have a credit card, and it was really hard for me to buy things online at that time, so I did not pay for it. But that was only because the technology was very, very primitive at that time. Uh, so if he tried oh, yeah, it again, I... <laughs> I would happily give him $3 to read a new chapter from the
6: plot. Even if you had a credit card, they would have to use the machine, the shachunk.
3: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. So I Send somebody to your house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I remember in those early days of Amazon, like, I remember I had sent checks. Like, I sent checks to Amazon to get books from them, you know? It's just wow. so funny. My first book I ever bought from them was Train Spotting. I still remember that very vividly. Hmm. So, uh, critical reception. How did critics react to uh, the regulators? Well, not great. Um <laughs> Uh, Entertainment Weekly, uh, they gave a good review, I believe, to Desperation, and they said, but they said, the regulators mostly reads like the kind of odd patchwork indulgence that should have stayed in the cellar where we learn in a too cute editor's note, it was quote-unquote discovered among the quote-unquote late Richard Bachman's papers. Joe Klein, check your attic, I don't get that reference. Um, That's
4: Joe Klein wrote the book about, about Bill Clinton under the pseudonym Anonymous, oh. and there was this whole, like, actually, like, this is, I'm like. At least ten years older than all of you, <laughs> um, I think a little more. I was in out of college when the, in 1996, so mm-hmm. um, it was a really big deal in the literary, you know, publishing industry. It was a bestseller, and Joe Klein kept denying that it was him. Oh really? And kind and of then it was one of the actually early uses of that AI that figures out who wrote what. Oh, you know? interesting. They used a computer program to figure out that it was Joe Klein, and finally he had to fess up. It was that it was him. So <laughs> anyway, so there's a little history that. People Thank you for that. Your age wouldn't know because hey, it really gotta, didn't matter in the end. <laughs> I knew
6: it. I knew the reference. I got a political okay. science degree though. So.
4: Oh okay. Nice. nice. I worked with Joe Klein, and he was a pompous asshole. Well, I worked so. with
6: oh, Mark Rich. No, I know where the bodies
4: are buried. All
3: right, He yeah, probably is weekly. a pompous asshole. Who knows?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked to him in a long time.
3: The laborious story, which is not a sequel, not a prequel, and not worth bothering with, finds a (laughs) bunch of addled Ohio suburbanites defending themselves against gun-toting monsters in a place that, as one character explains, is partly the Old West as it exists on TV and partly a place called the Force Corridor, which only exists in a TV cartoon version of the 23rd century. Got it? Me neither. The regulators <laughs> reeks of desperation and not in a good way. After thirty-seven books, King's earned the clout to publish one this silly, and even his most devoted readers have earned the right to skip it. But <laughs> not us because we are an exhaustive Stephen King podcast. Um this uh th- I found one positive review. Uh uh actually mostly let me see here. Okay, yeah. The I have one from the New York Times that's kind of um, that's kind of uh, more lukewarm it says mr. King amplifies the splatterpunk with a super saturation of documents sets scrawled drawings handwritten journals letters film scripts and teleplays that endlessly uh, repeat his tax saga but the exploding typefaces like the steady ricochets from desperation never accrue much resonance a crafty short story lost under a landslide of print I think that's probably true mm-hmm. uh, and we'll and we'll talk more about the super saturation of documents a little bit later um, and then Publishers Weekly i found this the positive review they said this devilishly entertaining yarn of occult mayhem married to mordant social commentary is pure king and resembles little the four non-supernatural if science fictional pre-thinner bachmans but one thing is certain call him bachman or call him king the bard of bangor is going to hit the charts hard and vast with this white knuckler knockout (laughs) what a sentence right Um, and then I have this bit from, we always like to revisit uh, Grady Hendrix's uh, Stephen King reread for Tor.com, which he did back in you know the mid, mid-2010s, and uh, he always kind of begins his reviews with sort of a, a capsule review that I like. He says, the title for The Regulators came to Stephen King first, the gimmick came second, and the book came third, and like one of Roger Corman's AIP productions where the poster and title were developed long before anyone started writing a script, the results are 1% inspiration, 99% exasperation inspiration this is the book version of reptilicus or muscle beach party thin undemanding entertainment that doesn't add up to much the regulator sports all the writerly elegance of a clumsy dog knocking over a sack of aluminum cans so yeah definitely not the most uh beloved among king's books um and i've yet in you know this is the kind of book too where when i think about like, I don't know, Oddball King fans, right? Of which I know many and of which I consider myself one. Uh, when when you're digging deep into his archive, a lot of people like to to prop up the deep cuts and say, Well, you know, you should check out this one. It's really crazy. It's really wild. I, I feel like none of those people I know are big regulators fans either. <laughs> so yeah. Like it's like it's like even the people who love the weird stuff are like, man, this one, you know, it ain't it ain't doing it. Tommy and, Knocker's
4: um, Defender comes in and says <laughs> Yeah.
3: <laughs> I know. And we are the Tommy defenders. (laughs) But, but yeah. I think, though, on the
6: critical reception, um, I I think that the idea, too, of, like, kind of the gimmick preceding the story Mm -hmm. makes a Mm -hmm. lot of sense. Like, I I appreciate what he was trying to do with the twinning, but it almost makes me wonder if he even held back a little bit on desperation just so he could have the pair Mm. versus, like, if it would have been better to kind of just create one great novel instead of one okay one and one not-so-great one.
5: Yeah.
4: Yeah, it's yeah. like the wide album argument. I don't think this would have done well as a mashup into desperation at all. I mean, I think he has actually what it would be an interesting short story. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Like no, about
4: no, I'm not saying television ma- and about violence in suburbia, right? Like, yeah. I could see it getting slimmed down into a short story that had nothing to do with desperation. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
6: No, I, I think it dilutes the the two. Uh, just taking some of the talk stuff. I don't know. I, I like talk is maybe a little bit more of an active character in the regulators, but I don't know. I just think he kind of watered watered it down for the effect of the twinning, which again, I appreciate the, the attempt here, but
5: yeah. Yeah.
1: And I am not, I don't necessarily say I'm going to be a regulators defender because I don't know if I like it that much, but like, I do enjoy the gimmick. And I think this kind of helps me clarify how I feel about desperation. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to talk too long about that because I've got more thoughts about it for the mashup episode, but yeah, yeah, I, I do enjoy like the twinning aspect of it and it kind of just helps me see things in another way. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I do think that there is some complimentary moments, like moments where I feel like I understand perhaps Johnny a little bit more, or at least an aspect of him that I didn't know before. So I do think that's something we can discuss in the next episode. But yeah, let's uh, hop into the book itself here. I'm going to read a synopsis that I pulled here. I believe this one's from Amazon. Because the one from my book, I have the Signet edition um, with the TV uh, behind some barbed wire on the cover. Mm. And, you know, the... the, Basically, the synopsis here is just really basic. There's a place in Wentworth, Ohio, where summer is in full swing. It's called Poplar Street. Up until now, it's been a nice place to live. The idling red van around the corner is about to change all that. Let the battle against evil begin.
1: See, Um, and that
3: hooks me. I want to read that
1: book, you know, and that's (laughs) probably why I picked this over Desperation. It's just, there's a lot more than just that
3: paragraph. Yeah. And I'll add to Jen, like, I think that is something that drew me into was the the suburban aspect because I was, yeah. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and mm-hmm. I, I was very, it was honestly rare for me. Like when I was in school, I wasn't reading books that were about the suburbs, you know? And obviously mm-hmm. there are many, many books about the suburbs, but there weren't at least in the realm of literature that I was reading at the time. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't seeing any books that reflected my day to day. And of course this book doesn't reflect my day to day, but <laughs> it did to some degree resemble the neighborhood that i grew up in so um all right i'm gonna read the synopsis from amazon it says it's a gorgeous midsummer afternoon along poplar street in the peaceful suburbia of wentworth ohio where life is as pleasant as you could ever dream it to be but that's all about to end in a blaze of gunfire and sudden violence forever shattering the tranquility and the good times here For the physical makeup of Poplar Street itself is now being transformed into a surreal landscape straight out of the active imagination of the innocent and vulnerable Seth Garin, an autistic boy who's been exposed to and possessed by a horrific otherworldly force of evil, one with sadistic and murderous intent, and who is willing to use whatever means necessary to grow ever stronger. Um, Does anybody have another synopsis that they have that perhaps hook them? Or... Anything interesting? What does it say in the in the, original edition? Yeah. the original edition? Yeah, original edition.
4: Yeah, author of the best-selling novel *Thinner* and four thrillers <laughs> that have sold millions in omnibus edition called *The Bachman Books*. The late Richard Bachman has been described as Stephen King without a conscience. Now he performs an eerie encore with the post with the humorous the posthumous posthumous release of *The Regulators*, a harrowing story of a suburban neighborhood in the grip of surreal terror. It's a summer afternoon in Wentworth, Ohio, and on Popular Street, everything's normal. The paper boy is making his rounds. The Carver kids are bickering at the corner convenience store. A Frisbee is flying on the Reed's lawn. Gary Soderson is firing up the backyard barbecue. The only thing that doesn't quite fit is the red van idling just up the hill. Soon it will begin to roll, and the killing will begin. A quiet slice of American suburbia is about to turn to toast.
2: The toast. mayhem rages...
4: The mayhem rages are on a seemingly still point, a darkened house lit fitfully from within by a flickering television screen. Inside, where things haven't been normal for a long time, are Audrey Weiler and the autistic nephew she cares for, eight-year-old Seth Garren. They're fighting their own battle, and its intensity has turned 247 Poplar Street into a prison house. By the time night falls on Poplar Street, the surviving residents will find themselves in another world, one where anything, no matter how terrible, is possible. And where the regulators are on the way. By what power they have come, how far they will go, and how they can be stopped. These are desperate questions. And the answers are absolutely terrifying. Good
1: book. That would be a great book. (laughs) I know that's and that's like the, the broad strokes of that are what I like about the story, you know? Also, I wonder if he snuck the word regulators into his desperation blur. Yeah, so I could go grab it if you want. <laughs> we do that for the
4: crossover.
6: No, I, I love yeah. too. Like just the—he's uh, really setting the stage of suburbia. It's like there's a guy barbecuing. Oh, you don't believe me? Okay, there's kids playing frisbee. How about now? Like, like okay, we got it. <laughs>
4: We right. got it, dude. But, I mean, the darkened house lit fitfully from within by a flickering television screen. Like somebody was, I, mean, I used to write blurbs when I was an editorial assistant. Mm-hmm. That's good. I yeah. would have been real proud of myself. It's like, yeah. <laughs> funny,
6: too, on the back cover, they have the uh, sort of the obituary for Richard Bachman, too, and talks yeah. about how his wife discovered the manuscript, which I, I do like. I, I think it's so cool, like having the Richard Bachman, you know, pseudonym the persevering oh, you guys have the of same picture
4: of Bachman
3: yeah
1: at the piano yeah, yeah. looks kind of like Stephen King a little bit <laughs> oh
3: my God. Uh-huh. I do have photos where it doesn't look like me you know like photos from when I was younger where yep. I'm just kind of yeah and I, I I'm like I bet that's funny because I can oh, see he's why he chose cigarette. that fitter. yeah
5: I was just
4: say it he's almost like a piano he's in a typewriter, typewriter right oh yeah, oh, yeah. I that's guess I just right. assume piano yeah he's a typewriter and he's smoking a cigarette yeah like, so I wonder funny. if he thinks it looks like him. I bet he thinks it doesn't look like him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is me without a conscience. Just <laughs> <laughs> Tabitha, what he looks like without a conscience.
3: Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, <sighs> well, let's pop over and talk okay. about some of the themes, quote unquote, in this book in a little section we call <clears throat> the hook.
2: Ah. Oh. Yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future. You can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly.
3: Welcome to The Hook. Let's talk... Like, whereas just desperation, we had, God, an, an abundance of things to discuss about what that book is about, what King was trying to do, what he was reckoning with in his personal life, I think here, um, I don't know, the actual point of this book, I think, is a little bit uh, blurrier. I have a few things to discuss here, um, because he talks a lot about the idea of... You know, these are two books about God. Desperation and Regulators are both about God, but uh, you know, Desperation is about Old Testament God, and the Regulators is about the New God, the the God of suburbia, the television. Um, and I guess for me, I struggle with that concept because there, you know, I think especially in the '90s there was this this worry because, you know, TV, there was more TV than ever before and kids were becoming obsessed with these franchises, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers are kind of the big ones that come to mind. And, uh, and they were becoming quote unquote, increasingly violent. So I think there was a lot of hand wringing going on in culture around that time. And, you know, this was around Beavis and Butthead time too. And obviously all the kerfuffle that arose around that show. So I guess like, I wonder if King is trying to make some comment about... about TV in the 90s and its effect on children. So I have a few questions here that we can discuss. We already discussed sort of the Moto Cops and what they made you think of. That is the action franchise that uh, Seth is watching. Brief reference to it in Desperation as well. But it's essentially a group of, um, you know, futuristic uh, soldiers who are fighting a villain called No-Face, who um, is actually kind of creepy sounding. Um, it probably would have scared mm-hmm. me when I was young. Sounds but, like Dr.
6: Uh, claw from Inspector Gadget. Yes. <laughs> You're afraid
3: of the claw. And, uh, but then we also... See, like, but then also Seth is also obsessed with these old Westerns, specifically a fictional movie called The Regulators. Um, And so, like, I don't know. Why do we think King chose to combine these two things? This hyper-modern children's show that's set in the future and this old-timey Western that was made in the 1950s. Why do you think those are the two things that are converging in Seth's mind and on the street here in this suburb? What do you guys think?
1: Okay, I have a couple of thoughts. So if I can if I look at how I think this relates to the overall theme of religion, I think, and I say this is not a big fan of the Western genre, so I'm not Mm -hmm. super versed in it, but it's it looks to me like a very kind of rigid social structure you know there's like um a patriarchal kind of element to it which i think kind of we see mirrored in a lot of religion you know so i wonder if that it kind of dovetailed there i think with the the they're not power rangers motocops there's like a very clear good and bad so Mm -hmm. there's like very even though they're working together here which i think i've got more thoughts about that with the overall theme but i think Oh, I think I may have lost my train of thought, but yeah, I think those two things. Like, I don't know if the two of them go together. There's also like the the permission to be violent in both Mm of those genres. You know, I think is what kind of connects them together. Like the unquestionable
4: authority. You know.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: I want to weigh in on the whether or not these are both about religion. Yeah. Um, we talked about whether or not you know desperation was about. I'm still not certain that desperation is about necessarily the old Testament God. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a, like a religious scholar and I know there's sort of the stereotypical thing, like the old Testament God is cruel and the new mm-hmm. Testament God is more forgiving. I think there's some in both. Yeah. I think yeah. I, as we discussed, desperation is about God for sure.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: I think this is about power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when power is not refining, when power and cruelty are not refining. Yeah. Like what happens when you just have the tack power, right? Mm, Unbalanced by any kind of good. You know, like there is a kind of like there is a kind of cruelty that's refining. And there's a kind of cruelty that just creates chaos and Mm -hmm. just, like, is indulgent in cruelty for its own sake. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what this is about. I think the term regulators is actually maybe intentionally interesting um, because one thing, like, that children don't do is self-regulate, right? Like, that's the defining aspect of being Mm -hmm. a child is the inability to regulate emotions, the inability to regulate your actions. An autistic child has a particularly difficult... A difficult time regulating emotions that's actually one of like the trademarks of autism is the you know need to do some kinds of self-regulation self-soothing stimming that kind of thing and so i think this is about when two forms of like unregulated power come together yeah and you get nothing but chaos and blood and and shit yeah Yeah. lots of shit
6: No, I, yep. I think it's funny how this- And
4: Boyardee, also I <laughs> <gross. laughs> <laughs> every description of that just like I was like having to turn the page so fast like it, yep. it, like squishy Same. food grosses me out just in general. Yeah, um, artificial green. orange, yeah. <laughs> uh,
6: it's funny cuz it And chocolate a, milk uh, yeah, with x lax in it. Um yeah, there's like a quaintness too to the idea of like television being the god. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. television's going to rot your brain and now every kid has a Wi-Fi camera in his pocket that has access to every piece of media ever made and it reminds me of the Shining film where Jack Nicholson's like, it's okay, he saw it on the television, you know, (laughs) there's a little bit of like cynicism there Um, but I do remember like, you know, in the Simpsons, like they would be like worshipping the television and it was just sort of the you know, the center of American families, it's like, oh, let's get around and bask in the glow of our new God Yeah, looking back, it just seems a little like I said, a little quaint
4: Sure, it's a little—it's a little bit showing King's age, kind of. Yeah, this idea that television is going to be the, you know, boob to the whatever the opiate of the masses, like religion. Yeah, um, and well, I do think King has a harder time with with really incorporating like super modern technology into his novels. Mm-hmm. Like he—he he doesn't like sell. I—I I enjoy sell as one of his trippier, not as great books. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't really grapple with like truly grapple with like technology. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Tries um, to. And what yeah, tries to. And again, his earnestness in that makes it sort of easier to take, but like I think he's really this is just he's st- stuck in the television age. Like that is how he grew up and his he has a pretty subtle understanding of how TV works. Yeah. On us. Um but yeah, I don't And this is a good book of its era in a way. Like this is a good picture of how people thought about television. Absolutely, you know, in the mid '90s. Um, Yeah, and and that way it's kind of a snapshot, or a you know, a snapshot of that particular moment of media criticism. Yeah, yeah, especially Um, in
3: suburbia. Yeah, mm -hmm.
6: yeah, and also there's the there's that legacy too of like, I mean, you know, like the kid is watching an old western on TV, Mm -hmm. and there's a history of bringing Japanese stories into mm. the western genre right with like seven samurai and such um mm-hmm. you know and even then like power rangers is a japanese import but i just it's funny to be like oh moto cops like power rangers and him trying to draw it back to like an old dusty western tv show it just doesn't quite get there for me
4: uh, yeah. i was going to say one about the about the why these two genres mm-hmm. is that their genre yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true that children, not just you know, autistic children, tend to love genre and tend to love like pop music mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the structure and the familiarity that you get. Like the Ramones are really kids love the Ramones. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you know, because it's all three minutes long or two yeah. minutes. And um and they sound a little bit alike. I mean, I love the Ramones <laughs> too, but you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. they're definitely playing within a structure. Right. And I can see how again a, a child that had trouble self regulating the structures of these shows would be soothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Absolutely. and I see
1: kind of I love Law and Order
4: for the same reason.
1: <laughs> same year, Yeah. Um, and I Dun-dun. feel like when I look at religion in itself, like the structure of a service is very structured for that reason. Like when I look at organized religion and the purpose of it, it feels to me a lot of times of creating a structure and creating a world in which we navigate mm-hmm. life. And to a certain extent with some religions, I'm not gonna specify which ones, but like <laughs> there is an element of like mass delusion needed or like mass kind of buying in that I feel like we get with television, you know? And so I mm-hmm. think like, and creating like these these new, like these television, is is television our mythology? You know, I think we talk sometimes about like arguing about would Freddie or Jason win a fight as if they're like real people that would ever actually do that you know and i think maybe that's the connection that i see and i kind of see it as um like what is the twilight zone episode it's a good life i think yeah with the little boy
4: i thought it was the monsters when the monsters come to whatever street isn't that the one where the kid has the power
3: uh, when I was doing my research, it was, uh, it's a good life. Yeah. And I it's... think of
1: the Simpsons episode, what, honestly. <laughs> but Very like, good
6: you did that thing, Bart.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's good. Oh, the carpet's on fire. Um, and I think like that, if a really cold reading of kind of what I think he's struggling with in desperation is maybe he's, I sense a lot of anger at God here as if Tack is the God that he is raging against in right. this book. And I might be giving him a lot more credit, but that's kind of what I connected to it. And that also says a lot about kind of my own personal journey and where I am with it, which I'm not going to go into again, but.
3: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. And I I think I, when I think about what you were saying on about um, that, we're dealing with not the edifying cruelty, but rather the destructive cruelty. And we're dealing with uh, a bad guy with no real counterbalance here. I guess my question is, is there a counterbalance? What represents good in this uh, book is, you know, because I this is a uh, a world where it doesn't feel like there is a God in the traditional sense. Um, yeah. And so I guess like, does God exist here in like love? Is it relationships? Because ultimately it's Audrey. You know, it's Audrey and like sacrifice for Seth and everything that I think sort of saves the day. But what do you guys think? Like, is there a counterbalance to this evil or is it just sort of a scramble? And if you're lucky, you know, you can overcome the bad thing.
6: Yeah, I, I, I don't see much of a counterbalance. I, I had not thought about that. But even then, like, the love of a parent for their child is kind of going back to what Anna was saying. It's like a structure there that we're all kind of familiar with. So it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, love the kid. But yeah. It didn't convince me in the text that that was like this prevailing good that could fight the power of talk.
3: Yeah.
1: I don't know if I necessarily see good either. I do think, I agree. I think the strength in relationships, I think is is maybe as much as we get, but some of these relationships are terrible and people yeah. are very, very mean to each other. So it's hard <laughs> for me to see that as a selling point, you know? Yeah. But I, I, f- I found that kind of, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jen. Well, I was just saying, I found this quote um, at the end of a long thing where Johnny is, talking about addiction but then and this is kind of how I feel about the world here as some it's on page 283 as some wise man or other once said there is no gravity the earth just sucks and I kind of feel like that's (laughs) like the worldview that I see here you know which on my dark days I'm like fuck I want to read a book where I just can just be mad
3: you know yeah yeah what were you gonna say Anna um
4: yeah just that like it um You know, so Richard Bachman is deep without a conscience and also where he lets his misogyny just really run rampant. And the women in this book are just (laughs) like I said this about Audrey Weiler in Desperation, which is that there's a certain kind of woman that King really hates. It seems like which is like a woman that he sees as manipulative and like using her sexuality to like get stuff, which... Yeah, women do because that's the kind of power we're allowed. Exactly, <laughs> like, that's the game. <laughs> that's the game we play. And some people are more subtle than others. But I mm-hmm. see. I feel like th- throughout this book, he's sort of very like um, the affair that. I, see, I read this so far. The affair that what's her face is having. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like,
6: yeah. I, no, I agree. We we you know maybe save it more for the combination episode coming yeah. up. But again, I even more so. I had trouble keeping track of all the characters. I was mm-hmm. constantly going online just to be like, wait, that's just to verify the relationships and whatnot.
3: Yeah. 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 I think um with, yeah, because I, I don't know. I just, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of the counterbalance and whether there is like good here, but most of these characters are so nasty, you know, and they're so, they're so there's, there's like, most of them are caricatures of like really shrill, um, or drunk suburban people, you know, yeah. like it's a really cynical view of the suburbs, I think. And I think like the most level-headed one is the guy who moved there on a lark, you know, Johnny, um, yeah. who like moved there from you know the city or whatever to get away from things. And yeah, and I guess like I was thinking like who's the good guy here? You know, is Audrey the good guy? Is Johnny the good guy? And um, but. It, it never really quite feels that way. Uh, they Nobody really feels like heroes here, you know? And I think that's probably the point, um, is that question of who is the hero in this world without a god, perhaps.
4: I want to just add that The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is also a story about suburbia going bad. Oh, interesting. Bad. That's why I think my brain... Yeah. Clicked. It's clicked. It's when like this little boy thinks aliens have come and turns into a story about mar- uh, about marijuana, oh. <laughs> <laughs> about, par- about paranoia, which marijuana no. can cause. That's um, <laughs> true, <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. I wouldn't know in Tennessee. I mean, so. yes. Um. I, anyway, so I, 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 can- just, I guess I want to want to not be so embarrassed by my. Um, mix up of, of Twilight Zone. Episode. Oh, no, but yeah. that's
3: that's a good point. I mean, the thing was, you know, King was mainlining the twi- Twilight Zone, so I mean, I imagine mm-hmm. a lot of and this book feels very Twilight Zony in terms mm-hmm. of the way that it evolved. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of those stories were probably bleeding into his head. Um, and, yeah, I guess, like, I'm curious, too, though, does this book because there were so many condemnations of violence on TV back in the 90s. Like, everybody was like, TV's getting too violent, there's too many dirty words, there's too much sex, we're polluting our children minds uh and you mentioned that you know we're dealing a little bit with kind of old man king here you know and I was gonna say earlier this feels like one of the first books where I'm getting the vibe because now whenever I read king and I love king I love modern king too but I always feel like I'm reading a book written by an old man like later his new book the main character is like a you know a kid who goes from the age like six to like 15 and He has no clue how to write children anymore, at least in the sense of like slang and pop culture Mm. and the things that they engage with. He, Like the kid uses the phrase Maximo at one time to describe something that is, uh, you know, big. And so it's yeah, it's very funny to me. Like when he
4: says, "I substitute Ethan Hawke for Rob Lowe." Like someone
3: pointed it out, it's like, "Oh yeah, way to go, Steve." No, hey, I love Ethan Hawke. Oh, we we all do, but that's not (laughs) like that's not the most in touch thing to do,
4: perhaps. So. he wants a pat on the back for like being. I know the. I know the girls talk about Ethan Hawke now. Uh, see, I've read Teen Beat. See, yeah, yeah.
6: I've seen reality. Bites. I'm an
4: EW columnist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
6: it's like she likes Ricky Schroeder. Right.
4: <laughs> and the thing is, like, of course, those references for King only are he, they're deftly used when he's writing about the time periods he knows and yeah. in, those, yes. in those cases it's grounding it's yep. interesting it's a detail like that's really useful like i read a something like ross mcdonald my favorite genre writers uh, mystery writers he wrote about something about writing once where he talks about how in the the thing that one thing that separates good writing from so-so writing is specificity right mm-hmm. yep. so like he was a naturalist and a bird watcher so in all of his like weird like you know, private detective books, you get specific names of trees. Yeah. And mm, mm-hmm. that feels like when when Stephen King is using popular culture well, like that's what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. This is like, like flipping, like flipping, <laughs> flipping Hunk names Lowe, so. Like it's just like so you're, clearly, clearly you're not doing something for specificity, you're doing it just to, I don't know. Yeah. Right.
3: Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But do, I guess my question is like, do we think that is King you know clutching his pearls about violence on tv in this book or is he maybe using just the general discussion that was in the air as a means to tell his story about violence you know about tv and violence and guns and toys um do you guys have any opinion on that
1: when was um golden years
3: golden years was was before that was like three or four years before this yeah
1: like i wonder because there's like there's just so much anger I feel when I'm reading this book and so I think it's kind of shooting out in a lot of different directions and I wonder if there's kind of an anger of like this is what you want from tv like why I tried to do tv and it's you know so I wonder if there's a little bit there the problem is like in on writing I think King talks about his themes and like he'll write a rough draft and then he'll go back and see what themes emerged and then kind of dovetail it and pull it together and I just don't feel like he did that in this book I feel like there are themes present but they don't they're not fully fleshed out or they right. don't like, he just didn't go back and edit that part. So,
3: yep. I agree yeah. with that. That's the thing is I really had a heart. Like I, I love everything you guys have been bringing to the table because honestly, like you've crystallized a lot of things for me that I was, cause I just, I was reading this thing. Like I have no idea what this is about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the, the ties that you guys were making to sort of religion and, um, and television <laughs> and, and all these other things I think are really smart. And, uh, Obviously, just more in depth than me because I found myself almost spiraling when I was reading this because I'm just like, I don't know what he's trying to say here. And it's okay, You know, not every book needs to have the strongest theme, or the strongest message. For me, this is really like a conveyor belt of murders, you know, uh, and really violent things. And from when I was a kid, that was enough. But now that I'm older, it's kind of like I expect a little bit more, especially coming off Desperation, where I felt like, like, you know, I couldn't stop myself from talking about it, you know.
4: Like, I feel like a theme here is the unedited king, Mm -hmm. right? because I don't feel like he did, like, Jen, like what you're saying, like, he didn't go back through this and look for themes mm-hmm. and just fucking, like, vomited it out or shat it out. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it just he just was like, yeah, ah, you know, like, I'm just going to do this. And um, I think some of the themes are unintentional, which is fine. You know, it shows when he's kind of, like, playing around in his head. But, again, I'll just go back to how one of the things that's always – usually redeeming about even his not great stuff is that he's struggling with something. Yeah. He's like trying to work it out. Like it's clear that he is like, has an idea or has a problem in his head and he's kind of writing around it and around it and around it, sometimes not knowing it, like The Shining. Like The Shining is a great example of that. And also I think, well, most of his, you know, we could probably pick out the thing he's trying to work out in almost every one of his memorable novels. Yeah. I don't think he's working anything out here. (laughs) Yeah. I think he's trying to rage some stuff out. Yeah. Cause I was thinking,
3: I was thinking too, I was, I was looking at the books that are coming up on the slate for this year. And I'm like, a lot of times you can perhaps see, uh, okay, well, maybe I can crystallize what was happening in one book by looking at what he wrote next, you know? Mm-hmm. And I can't really do that here. So it's like, because we like... got like and Glass, Bag of Bones, Girl I Love, Tom Gordon, like, and the thing, because I feel like uh, with Bag of Bones, especially, he's sort of retreating. He's, he's kind of touching on themes that he was touching on before this, you know? And so it's, uh, I'm not seeing like, how the regulators leads into this next book. Which makes me again, like we've talked about this concept of this book being a purging, like almost a, a bit of catharsis after after, you know, uh, inviting and c- confronting a lot of his demons in desperation, this book just feels like a big vomit, you know, which isn't a bad I'm thing. I'm
4: gonna go yeah. with shit.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: sure.
1: There's like a sliding helplessness to it <laughs> <Yeah>. or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's
5: it
4: just, later. He's 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 eliminating his waste. He is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah. And I, so and I
6: what think, were you we uh, saying on yeah. that on that point though too? Like it's You think of it, you know, mid-90s as post-Cold War and kind of yeah. to your point, Randall, of not having necessarily the balance of good and evil. You yeah. know, once America kind of lost the great villain of the Soviets, we were looking for new villains, right? And mm. it's what's on television. What I mean, I remember being in church growing up and my pre- priests saying smashing pumpkins were evil and
4: I was like no was they're gonna say, not. going to say y'all remember Tipper Gore? Yeah uh-huh. no, she, I mean, I've she's that literally <laughs> the one that came out
6: though against I mean I remember Frank mm-hmm. Zappa had an instrumental album that they put a parental advisory on just as you know being righteous but they were everyone was looking in the Clinton administration whatever your politics are you could say they were vilified in a lot of ways it's like oh no this is the new evil or Saddam Hussein is uh that Adam Curtis documentary The Power of Nightmares talks a lot about this how America was sort of struggling to find its villain that we could put mm. all the evils of the world in. And I just think there was a period where, I mean, there's evil certainly existed, but everyone was kind of looking in the wrong direction. And, you know, even now it's like, yeah, Beavis and Butthead at the time, I remember people protesting to get that off TV. And that's, it's, it's so timid. I mean, you know, I would show that to a child and not <laughs> worry that they would go light gasoline on fire. So, you know what I mean? But back at the time though, it was like, oh my God, this is this great evil. MTV is so terrible. And there's like an innocence to this time period that looking back on, you're just like, oh, they didn't even know how good they had it.
3: Yeah.
4: I mean, people never thought of Power Rangers as being overly violent, though. Like... Yeah. It's sort of funny to see what he's... Like I said, I don't think a ton of thought went into this.
3: Yeah. I think he saw his kids his grandkids or kids watching it and um you know was like wow they're they're kicking each other a lot you know yeah. and uh and I think he was probably just absorbing a lot of the dialogue that was happening but yeah. um but yeah I I think that's those are great points Flieger um and yeah just super interesting um let's pop on over and just talk briefly about uh this book for me like the use of autism here I think is a, is a You know, I I love what you were saying, Ana, about the idea of self-regulating. And that, that, I think, says a lot about it. But at the same time, you know, King, I think, has a habit, especially around this time, because we're going to talk about Dreamcatcher sometime soon as well, about, you know, he kind of moved on from the magical Negro, and now it's sort of, you know, the magical disabled person, you know? Um, And it's, I think that there is... You know something troubling about that to some degree He uses uh, you know This person who is differently abled And and the thing that they are afflicted with As you know that is like what protects them From tack you know in this weird way And it and it it fetishizes it It magicalizes it in its own way And it's uh, it's something that You know didn't bother me when I read it when I was a kid But now I just feel a little bit queasy about it Did you guys have any similar reaction Or yeah what do you think
4: I, I'll say that just because I see The self-regulation Theme or idea does not mean I'm defending that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it it does not help people with disabilities when you make them magical in the same way that it's not good to, you know, make magical people of different races. Like it's, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's so condescending. And I know he doesn't realize he's doing it, but it's just, I think he still doesn't know that. Yeah. Right. (laughs)
1: yeah (laughs) the autism thing is my big big issue with this and you know i say that as i when i was teaching i worked with a lot of kids on the autism spectrum and i feel like this is like we said earlier this is like a snapshot in time i feel like this is a snapshot in understanding of autism although i think maybe king is a little bit delayed on where even they were in 96 um and Ana, I think the self-regulation thing, I think that holds up. I just don't think he realized it. Like I don't no. think he understood uh-uh. that. But I do see that parallel <laughs> and I like that. I think there's a reading here that talk is autism and that talk it, the autism is the evil thing that is invading Seth and I really really dislike that. Like I mm-hmm. and that you know, I don't think he was intentionally doing that, but I think there's a way to read that Audrey struggling with this child in her home is what a parent would go through struggling with a differently abled kid in their home. And I feel like it's just, it just feels very cruel, you know, and not understanding like the use of the word defective over and over and over again. And there's just really, really bad understanding of what kids with autism are like and act like, which, and there's no understand. There's no one thing. Like the, the saying is, if you've seen one kid with autism, you've seen one kid with autism because every single person on the spectrum presents differently. And if the spectrum were bigger, we'd probably all be on it in some way. So it's Mm -hmm. just, and it's also like really still evolving. Like we're still kind of figuring out there's just a lot that's not known about it. it.
4: And I feel like he transplants some of the cliches about down syndrome Yep. to um, Seth because the whole like oh but he's so sweet sometimes mm-hmm. is like a thing that you hear people say yeah about kids with down syndrome which I actually don't hear people say I mean sometimes having an autistic kid is hard yep yeah. it is it's mm-hmm. really hard and like not hard in the ways that <laughs> it seems to be depicted here
3: yeah uh, yeah I so, have a line here pegged to what hey. you're saying on a um You know, so basically it's on page 104 of my Signet edition and they're talking about how, okay, it wasn't Seth though, not really. Not the Seth who had sometimes in the early days hugged them and given them brief open mouth kisses that felt like bursting soap bubbles. I owlboy, he would occasionally say while sitting in the special chair, words rising out of his usual unintelligible babble and making them feel, however fleetingly, that they were getting somewhere. I'm a cowboy. That Seth had been sweet, lovable, not just in spite of his autism, but partly because of it. That Seth had also been a medium, however, like contaminated blood which simultaneously nourishes a virus and transports it. Um and then that's the leads into the discussion of how of Tack, how he's infested with that. But that general discussion of, like, lovable not just in spite of his autism, but partly because of it, that's – this made me think about what you were saying, Anna, about this um, – about these various stereotypes and, and this um, – I don't know, this sort of uh, – uh, I don't know how to phrase it. I guess just, like, um, defanging it in in its own way um, and not taking it seriously. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It's, it's thorny stuff and – it just seems like kind of a crutch in its own way, too, which I think King has relied upon in a lot of his different uh, books. And we're going to talk a lot about that with Dreamcatcher when we get there, obviously, because Duditz is, is, you know, a very problematic character. And I think just that general idea of using somebody's um, you know disability as a crutch uh, to sort of justify some kind of magical quality is something that, you know, is uh, is an unfortunate habit around this time in his writing. So um, yeah. any other? Th- oh, go ahead, Jen.
1: Well, yeah, because I, I think there is a way to tell this story because the one thing that I do kind of kind of like, and I want to say that very carefully, is the idea of the autism being a barrier for communication, which I know is pretty true to life. Um, but I think it's just so clunky and, ha- and not handled well because I feel like there's so much judgment attached to this condition of like using like sweet but not sweet now when he you know he's doing things that are out of his control and I think there's a way to tell this story that I think could be really powerful and could you know maybe help. Mm-hmm. Help, but this is just not it. This is this obvious arguably does more harm, you know.
4: And I would say, like, this kid doesn't have to be autistic to tell this story. No, um, he doesn't. Like, it could be just like a smart kid, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And 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 I, again, I just feel like he really doesn't know mental disabilities very well. Like, no, I, think he's it's really, like I do really think he's confused Down syndrome and autism. Like, I literally think that he maybe is like, yeah. This yeah. is, like, the stereotype of autism.
3: Yeah, and I,
6: I think it's yeah. also just the unknown becomes magical, and that's the explanation mm-hmm. for it.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. or to
1: try to, like, put a bow on this. Like, oh, right. this this thing is really hard for us to deal with, but it's magic, so, yeah. yeah it's like, he's autistic, you know.
6: therefore he knows how to play the piano, which, well, growing like, up, too, those are depictions you would see. It's like, oh, you're gifted in this area, which is not necessarily the case. Right.
4: Like it, you say, you met one autistic
6: everything. kid, you've met one autistic kid, which I've never heard it put like that. That's sort of... I like that. Like I'm reading that book right
4: now, and one thing I appreciate mm. about it is Abra is like just a normal kid. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. Like it's yeah. a normal kid with an ability, which is actually more like what a disability is. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Is to be normal with this other thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And it's the other thing that makes is different,
5: mm-hmm. but mm-hmm.
4: not like the thing. You know, it's it's not like okay, you you're disabled, and then you get a thing to make up for it. Right. Right. You know? It's it's one thing that has right. both good and sometimes not well always, you know not as good things that go with it anyway sure so.
3: yeah
2: hello Bill Band here from the All Eighties Movies podcast to tell you about Factor Meals eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over thirty five different options to choose from every week including calorie smart Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today.
3: Um, any other themes that you guys want to discuss? Any other ideas that we didn't touch on in this book that, um, that you think deserve discussion?
1: I want to mention one thing. I don't Mm -hmm. know if it's really a theme I see, but if we're talking about suburbia, like I don't think it was intended this way, but I appreciate the element of racism in this Mm -hmm. book because I know that that is heavily baked into Mm -hmm. the idea of suburbia and we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the like this is it feels like skewering suburbia in a way that I find like pretty honest in a lot of ways, even though I didn't enjoy reading it. You know? sure. I yeah. thought
4: that scene was actually one of the better ones in the book, where where that woman whose name again, all the characters <laughs> right. are like, Is it Kim? I think it's Kim. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, like goes goes you know um, all like alt right on. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad, Branda, I think. I think. Brad and and yeah. Blanda, also yeah. non magical Negroes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> woohoo! I feel like that's what we get to celebrate that when King like manages to just have them be people He still <laughs> yeah. he's
3: he still leers over them though like oh, some of the, the language well just like yeah. but just the language like he can't talk about them without mentioning they're black which is often kind of frustrating but yep. i do agree that it's so and nice Their
4: bodies get a lot of attention their oh. bodies get a lot of
3: attention in, it's, in
4: which m- his white characters don't always yep. get like the kind of like yep mm-hmm. Almost yeah. pornographic
3: yep like, i was i, I have i think those. i have that in some of my misery later but um me too
1: Hi, I'm Jen. I love watching horror movies. I also have PTSD and I go to a lot of therapy.
5: I'm Lara. I have anxiety
1: and depression and love having the shit scared out of me. Wait,
2: what? I'm Mike. I'm a therapist and I love talking about horror movies and mental health.
1: (laughs) We love horror films for how much they scare us and for how much they help us.
4: Because we love talking about mental health, aka how crazy we are, and the role the horror genre can play in our self-care
1: we started a podcast called Psycho Analysis.
2: Every episode, we talk about a movie
3: and how it relates to a different topic in mental health and wellness. Whether it's a deep dive or a shorter episode in a movie that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy.
5: But not in a weird way.
1: Unless we're talking about hot horror sweaters, because then it is very weird. True. Very weird. (laughs) Our episodes drop every Thursday on the Consequence Podcast Network. Listen to find out... How horror horror can can heal. heal.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I think in in uh, in the spirit of moving on, let's move on to our <laughs> next section, structure and format. Lookin'. Welcome to Structure and Format, the section of the pod where we discuss the structure and format of a book. And this one, there actually is a good chunk to discuss here um, that I think is interesting. And this is sort of a Bachman trick that um, is also in some King books, specifically Carrie, but the idea of rounding out the narrative with scraps of correspondence, whether or just um, documents, whether. And here he actually uh, has a lot of fun, I think, with the supplementary documents. We get a script from the motocop we get uh, script pages from the regulators and we also get uh, letters written from um, a guy in desperation who kind of breaks down what happened to Seth and how he was possessed and we get letters um, you know the the end of the book plays out with a character we've never met before essentially seeing the ghost of of Audrey and Seth Um, and that's sort of how the book ends and we get a little drawing as well Um, sweet little ending and then uh, yeah so and then yeah, I have another couple things to discuss too, but do you guys like that supplementary sort of thing? Because um, King has pulled it in a couple books, and then obviously he's used it in some of the Bachman books as well. Is that a, a thing that you enjoy?
1: I love it in Carrie. Yeah. Um, I think it's sparing here. Also, I will say my audiobook did not include some of this.
4: Oh, really? Um, yeah, we didn't have
1: the screenplay section. Oh,
4: wow. I think it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. it's I, I appreciate it usually, like, when authors kind of do this i also think he does it in salem's lot i think pretty Mm -hmm. well too yeah um there's one place where it really did not work and also a continuity problem which is in my book page 195 where it's the drawing Mm -hmm. from seth and then he has it signed he has an explanation for it signed by editor yeah i'm like editor is this book exist in the real world right and like, you have an actual drawing and Richard Bachman somehow got possession of a drawing from, and he's telling the truth about a thing that happened or like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. who, editor who?
2: Like I that know. implies Editing. like a
4: found footage element or something. Yeah. You know? w- which hmm. is it, just to put it, fucking, just put it in there. You don't need right. really to tell me like, <laughs> you don't need to Not have talk Or something. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just a funny, like little, like he forgot whether or not it was found or if it's just a part of the book. So. Yeah. Like, like not edited. Oh, and so ironic because the theme of this podcast is unedited <laughs> king, and yep. an editor would have caught this. Right. Mm-hmm. Or said, a, hey, build this up, you know. Or just, like, put it in the novel. Don't, like, make, you don't have to explain why it's there. Nothing else is explained, like, yep. this was found. Right. An editor
5: you know? without a
6: conscience. Um, <laughs> But it, it was fun. So in the audiobook too, whenever they reference the um, like the diary entries, I would switch back to the actual paper book, um, which I, I you know it's visually it's interesting to see like mm-hmm. kind of the scripted out diary, and it reminded me of the book House of Leaves if you guys ever read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which just you know kind of gets playful with like the text and how it's presented. So I don't know. It's it's, it's an interesting experiment. I don't think that it really works here or adds much. Um, but I yeah. appreciate again the the attempt on it.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say um, this—the uh, scripts we get for Motocops oh, God, and for the regulators. With no editor. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the scripts we get don't really add much. Aside, I think he was using them as a means to help us better visualize the Motocops and to visualize the regulators, since they are like such important parts, especially visually. But um, I have to say that I. I I, I reread them a couple of times because I felt like I maybe was missing something deeper. And I just don't think it's there. So yeah. um, I'm always
6: curious with those two, though, like the publisher, if they kind of roll their eyes where they're like, oh, great, this is going to be <laughs> right. a hassle to like, get this out oh, printed. but he's going <laughs> to sell
3: a kajillion
4: copies. So yeah, I mean, with him, hey, hey, I'll front
6: the money for him. But, you know, they're just like,
4: oh, God, there's like 30 I pages think actually of those, diaries. <laughs> those screenplays actually kind of almost, I mean, like I said, I sort of just like prestige, So yeah. I'm OK with it. But I actually, specifically on the screenplays, I'm like, yeah, why am I, like, what are you telling me about this show
5: mm-hmm.
4: that I did I'm a- not getting from people describing it? Yep. You yeah. know? Like, I don't like feel like I missed the story, because I didn't mm-hmm. have that, you know? Like, if it, it would be interesting, like, if, like, one way to make it interesting would be, like, if they changed the script, like, all, like, you have the script, and then all of a sudden, like, it's Seth's version of the script mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. yeah. like, the story actually <laughs> changes. Um, but instead it's just like a not very good episode of <laughs> motocops, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I
3: totally agree. I have, I a, totally I agree. have oh. a complaint
1: too. Okay. Is bring that it in my book in those sections, there's not page numbers. And that drove me crazy. <laughs> like when I was, especially I was doing notes, I had to write in page numbers. And I don't know if this is going to like, I feel like I'm like old man yelling at cloud, but the writing in the last section
4: is really small. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, what is this? Otherwise, page numbers. There's not page numbers in the first edition either for those. Yeah, things, so. whenever
6: there's like the diary or the script, like I was trying to, you know, I'm always jumping ahead to be like, how many pages do I have to go? And at the yep. end, I was like having to estimate. I'm like, well, I guess that's 20 pages of diary. Uh-huh. But there's
1: no way to know. <laughs> yeah,
6: yeah. But to Anna's point too, it might maybe if like, yeah, if it would have switched over to like his penmanship or kind of they played with that a little bit. But yeah, there really wasn't a need to have it printed like that. Right. Right. It's not
1: like Misery, where, like, you see the letters and that is really cool and amplifies the story, you
3: know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely, you know, it just, it feels like, um, I don't know, a dash of, like, like, a quirkiness or character for no real reason, you know? Um, And so I wish I liked it more because I do think that that can be really effective. Like, I'm, I'm similar to you, Anna, in that I like pastiche. I like when, you know, like, I remember when I was writing a thing when I was in college. I thought it was so cool that I was adding, um, like, I was writing a story and I had AIM <laughs> conversations like written in uh, to like break up certain things. I remember thinking that was so clever on my part, and I think I was inspired in part by Regulator, so uh, I can give the book <laughs> credit for that. But uh, yeah, and then the other kind of note I had about structure and format was that um, that I thought was actually kind of neat, um, but it could get a little chaotic. Was like mere seconds, like, like three or four seconds play out over like 10 pages, like at certain Mm. parts of this book, like, uh, just, you know, when one character is it, like, I think when they're attacked, like by the mountain lion and stuff like that, I feel like we're leaping between so many different perspectives to cover this three or four seconds. And I'm a little bit mixed on it because part of me thinks that's fun. Like I kind of like seeing the different angles and everything, but at the same time, I'm like, I get it. I get it. The thing is killing him. Like, I need to move on from this section. Like, mm-hmm. I think this book is so belabored in a lot of ways. I mean, it's kind of amazing that it, like, I remember being shocked when I picked it up and it was this thick, you know, which isn't even that thick, but that's pretty thick. And because um, I didn't remember Regulators being this long. And it's not as long as Desperation, obviously, but to me, it's like, I I don't need that much. This book is like, we talk a lot about his books being overwritten or just being like stretched out like taffy. But this one for me is, uh, is almost criminally. so, So,
1: And I think there are places where I do really like that. Like at the end, I like how it's talks time, talks place, Seth's time, Seth's place. Like, I think he does a pretty good job of distinguishing the action. Like the characters know, but like I generally have a good understanding of what's happening. It's just that the same thing kind of keeps happening. Right. Um, I think it's just that we don't need it in every single thing. You yeah, know?
3: yeah. And I don't need like I just don't need to have every perspective sometimes, you know, there's just Mm -hmm. too many damn characters, Um, which, you know, when I was young, I really liked that aspect because I loved ensembles. But this is an instance where not every character is contributing equally. (laughs) So, You know, Um, any other thoughts on structure and format about the way this one is laid out? Otherwise, we can pop in and talk about those characters that I was just mentioning. All right. I think that is a sign that it is time to move on to our heroes and innumerable villains.
4: I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown.
6: Welcome to the losers' club, asshole. <laughs>
3: hero and heroes and villains, we discuss uh, the various characters, but because we don't want this podcast to be seven hours long, we are not going to discuss every <laughs> character in this book. So we're each going to kind of go around and talk about what characters stood out to us. Um, and yeah, who want, Jen, do you want to kick it off? What is a character that you think is maybe rises above the rest a little bit?
1: Um. Well, I don't know if it, like I want to talk about Johnny but I feel like that is a more interest. like I feel like my thoughts on Johnny are maybe in comparison to Desperation Johnny but the character I think I really found myself coming back to was Ralphie mm-hmm. um, the little boy and it could be just because I have a son that age but just like the journey that that kid is put through in this book like really touched me and made me kind of think about like a lot, like he starts as just being this totally whiny brat, um, and totally indulged by his parents, like the element of like, he's the clear favorite of the kids. Like, Mm -hmm. and I mean, there's part of that is like, it's just having kids, you know, but, um, I, I liked seeing that through Ellen's eyes. And then I liked like, I I didn't like it. I found it interesting and compelling how he is just kind of broken by watching his parents die. And some of what I found, like it was really hard to read, but I found like a lot of sympathy for him. Like the, the there's this passage where he talks about the behavior for like the next 10, 20 years is going to be shaped by this moment, which like in my own therapy, thinking about some of my old memories of my childhood, like I didn't get attacked by power Rangers, but like just thinking about how those things, affect the rest of your life and the way like this poor kid is going to have to deal with this with his both his parents gone you know Mm
3: -hmm. yeah that's interesting
6: i i I thought the uh i was looking forward to see Kali and Trajan again um because especially there's a scene where you know he He's no longer a police officer, but he sort of operates as if he is one. And there's that moment where he's kind of like, do I tell them in this split second? Um, (laughs) I did some work legally back in the day about officers operating under color of law and like what that entails. So while I was reading that, I was like, oh, yeah, he's a former police officer. But if he's acting like a, you know, he's technically breaking the law. But you can see that moral dilemma where he still thinks of himself as a cop. Yeah. Um, And, I, you know, I have a lot to compare it next episode. Um, But I, I thought he was a little more fleshed out, I guess, than desperation. And, you know... Kind of disgraced cop, seen better days. I uh, yeah. Hated to see him go in this one. Whereas, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, not I, not I, my favorite. Char- there, there really wasn't a character that I felt super attached to. Um, it was more just seeing like the twinning aspect. Um, I, I, you know, I wanted more from it, but yeah, um, Kali jumped out. Now, to are
4: me. we saving discussion of how the characters
3: complement each like- other?
4: Compliment each other for the next episode? Um,
3: I think we can save most of that discussion. But if you have sort of a broad level, uh, you know, comparison, I think that's fine to mention here. It's hard to separate them. I think it's interesting
4: that Johnny, I think, is the only character that has sort of the same. Yeah. In Mm -hmm. both, like, literally has the same job. Uh Yeah. Right? Um, And then also, it's not so much a different person as, like, the different path taken. Yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah. Know, for the same exact guy right? just a different path taken um, and then actually I was I thought I might be alone in, in Kali and in sort of being interested in Kali because um, a few things one is that it's a rare cop character for King who's complicated and not just evil or good mm-hmm. um, I did have one laugh I'm just going to say where um, Carrie Ripton is thinking about. they all think that he killed a kid like that's the rumor or like how uh-huh. he got disgraced and Carrie says to himself, if he killed a couple kids, how come he's not in jail? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. How <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, there's who. What color were those kids? I wonder. It, 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 he didn't actually kill the kids either, right? Like, that's the story. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and I actually, so I like that he's not, yeah, I like that he's not just deranged, which a lot of King's cops are just deranged. Right. Um, and he's not completely good either um i also oh and also you know the other character that's basically the same as steve
3: yep yep and mm-hmm.
4: also what's her face cynthia, and cynthia. yeah there's cynthia. really those not much the, difference it's interesting there. to me that like those are the con- continuity characters i yeah. think mm-hmm. that those are also the ones he likes Yep, i think i got so that too. vibe too And they're the ones I like in this book, you know? Yeah, yeah. like Steve gets some great little lines. Mm And he's like a little more – he's a little – it's funny, actually, because Steve in this is less responsible than he is in Desperation. And then Johnny is more responsible than he is in Desperation. So anyway – I have um, a question
3: about Steve. How old did you think he was in Desperation? Do you think he's the same age in here and in Desperation? Because for some reason I was reading him as like – 20 years older in Regulators mm-hmm. versus Desperation, but I feel like I might be alone in that. I had him, like, I, vi- I envision him as, like, an old gray-haired hippie, like, in, in Regulators yeah. for some reason. Yeah, but yeah, it I didn't
4: see him it as that and Desperation as see, well. I, yeah. I see him as a guy that, like, is sort of probably how King doesn't see himself, but should. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a guy who's really into rock and roll. You yeah. yeah. You know? And then, yeah. like, kind of ages out of it. Um, without not realizing he's aged out of it. Yeah. Although, and that's actually one something that's always bothered me about his relationship with Cynthia, right? Like, because she's whatever, like early 20s or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's but, why I always
3: pictured him as younger in... Uh, Desperation because they play up the romance between them more in Desperation. So I think I yeah. always saw him as like maybe in his late 30s or something or mid 30s. And I know <laughs> Steven Weber plays him in the in the miniseries. So it's like, I guess I envisioned yeah. him as Weber-esque, but here it was really hard to avoid the hippie vibes and like the idea that he's got like Willie Nelson hair or something. Um, yeah. So, but I enjoyed him. I think Steve's great. Yeah, I do agree. I think the characters that are perhaps most compelling, aside from Kali, because Kali was m- like my favorite too. And I'll talk about that in a second but the ones that to me were most interesting were the ones who kind of carried that continuity um mm-hmm. because I felt like I was learning dif- like yeah like you mentioned Anna it was like the the road the the other road that was taken you know and I think mm-hmm. that's a really interesting sort of um way to look at it like if Steve you know turned the wrong corner and ended up in this suburb in Ohio I almost wish yeah. that
4: that's what he had done with every character yeah that had been basically the same but just like different choices made yeah yeah mm-hmm. And anyway.
3: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think, um, and we'll talk more about that in our next episode about this, but, but yeah, Kali to me, I, I think, and it, it is hard to separate it from the other character. Cause I think like you Flieger, I felt like I was perhaps seeing, we never saw human Kali in desperation. We only saw right. the possessed version. And so in a way I felt like I was seeing Kali, but I envisioned him as older too in regulator. So I saw him as maybe 20 years older than he was in, um, in desperation, uh, and as, you know, having been through the ringer and um, was this sort of disgraced cop. And, and he had like a dimension to him that we didn't get in desperation. And I think I was mm-hmm. drawn to that. And and like you mentioned, Anna, it is sort of a fresh view of, of a cop in, in at least up to this point in King's Oove. And so, uh, but yeah, and I found myself really drawn to him. And like you, Flieger, I was really sad when he died because I was like, he was the character I was kind of most invested in, in a lot of ways, because um, I don't know, there was there was dimensionality to that character and I think a lot of that had to do with how we got so much discussion about how the rest of the community views him because the kids are all scared of him and everybody is kind of like what's that guy's deal and 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 he was also the one taking the most agency once everything started happening so I think I was drawn to him for that reason whereas a lot of the characters are just kind of there um, mm-hmm. and being scared and hiding in people's houses and um, and I think that you know constitutes a lot of the um, you know evolution of the other characters um so yeah I um, I I want to talk more about uh, Peter, um, uh, Mary's husband, who is – he's a professor in this and basically learns that his wife – well, he watches his wife get murdered and then he – finds out she was cheating on him I believe and then basically becomes like a human uh, you know energy source for Tack, and then is kind of sent off into the woods to wander and that section to me is probably my favorite of the entire book I kind of love Peter's little arc but when I was because re- I remembered it from when I was a kid but rereading it I, I was shocked at how little character he actually has like he kind of just gets strung through the ringer but there's no there there in terms of mm-hmm. who he was so I was a little disappointed by that because I remember being like very into that journey. So, um so he's less of a character for me than he is uh, a denizen of the cemetery, which we'll get to in a moment. But um but yeah, any other thoughts on character? I mean, the wild thing is there's so many, but there's so little uh development that it's like there's really not a ton to discuss. But Jen, did you have something else?
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk about Audrey mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and the relationship with Talk because I do think that's maybe one of the more compelling stories I found like I I I think it's it's clunky it's clunkily handled little clunkily handled (laughs) as the entire book is but I think it's a really interesting um portrait of like an emotionally and physically abusive relationship and being trapped and not being trapped physically but like being trapped by these bonds whereas like you're gonna be punished if you leave the house and don't you dare leave me and like humiliation and the fact that he wants to fuck her Mm -hmm. and and which i thought was really interesting because talk can enter people like He can do that. So it's not that he wants to enter her. It's he wants to subject her to this. He wants to rape her. Exactly. This humiliating thing. He wants to punish her in that way, which I found really disturbing and off-putting. But her responses to that, I think I found kind of endearing and just, I mean, I don't know. I think it's done better in a lot of his other books, but I did enjoy that story. That's probably the through line that I found through the book, you know?
4: So it's funny because I think one of the things that we've talked about with King and his portrayal of abusive relationships is he usually has trouble showing why people stay. Mm -hmm. Right. And the good Mm -hmm. reason that the the affection that you can have for your tormentor. Mm -hmm. And he sort of accidentally does that here. Yeah. Like because he literally turns it into a split personality. But anyone who's been in an abusive relationship it's not really a split personality. It is actually the same person, but there's a part of them that you love. And then it's bound up just inextricably with mm-hmm. the person that torments you.
5: Yeah. yeah.
4: And, I, and, and this is an interesting way that's funny that King gets there with this, where mm-hmm. his other abusive relationships, he seems not to be able to portray that part of them that is why you would want to stay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I wanted to say something about Peter because mm-hmm. I actually had a laugh out loud moment yeah with peter which is on my page 279 although no one else is 279 <laughs> um i he's ta- he, so he's been possessed by tack and he's in his house and there's sort of like a, a little bit of this reflection on who he used to be how tack is completely like all of who was peter is no longer there um he says he had been working on a scholarly article called james dickey in the new southern reality Relishing the thought that it would stir a great deal of controversy in certain Ivy, Ivy Bowers of Academe, he might be invited to other colleges to be on panel discussions. <laughs> <laughs> panel discussions to which he would travel with all expenses paid. <laughs> and then so it just goes on for a bit. And um, you know, he passed the patio on a diagonal, striking the edge of the table with his hip as he walked by, an issue of verse Georgia, and several of his research books fell off the stack and landed in a puddly pink brick. Peter ignored them. His fading sight was fixed on the green belt which ran behind the houses on the east side of Poplar Street. His almost lifelong interest in footnotes had deserted him. <laughs> I did I, I did a audible laughter. Yeah. No, that is super <laughs> funny. Me on that. I think oh.
3: uh, poking a little fun at the 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 life of the academia is um... well
4: also is the nostalgia I think I have for panels. Yeah. When yeah. once we went on went went to panels <laughs>
3: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I along what you were saying about Audrey as well, I think something that um that helped me sort of understand the struggle too was just the disrepair that the house was falling into. Mm-hmm. Um the mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. that it was becoming like, you know, filthy, that there was mess everywhere, that things were piling up, just the mess of it all, I think. And that I think relates in some ways to um you know, the revulsion of it, the the idea of the Chef Boyardee and the milk and everything just like congealing everywhere. It's disgusting, but it also, I think, sets, um you know, it speaks to a sense of being trapped and it speaks to a sense of depression and, uh, you know, a general inability to, um, I don't know, uh, uh, um, activate yourself in this sort of time. And uh, yeah, and I felt like that was really effective too. And it made me sympathize with her i think she was probably the one i sympathize with most uh throughout yeah. this this one so yeah glad we discussed her um yeah other th- yeah go ahead
1: well, i feel like we don't ever really like collie in desperation get a sense of who she really is you know right. like i was thinking what would her house look like and how horrible that would be to have to live like that and have no control um because that's just kind of a manifestation of the inward feelings you mm-hmm. know and they're I don't know if I want to go into the, the part where she she goes into the bathroom to release it in mm-hmm. a manual way. But I yeah. just think there's like that, you know, that's that's a lot of pain that she's carrying.
3: And, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Cool. Uh, any other characters you want to touch on before we uh, immerse ourselves in our own bath of misery?
4: <laughs> oh, Doc is also basically the same
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, yeah, he just struck me as a little bit less self-destructive in this one.
4: Yeah, not as, yeah, I don't think he's an alcoholic
3: in right. this one. Yeah. But he's a
4: veterinarian with a picture of a corgi on his wall.
3: <laughs> I did like the little animals that popped up. I wonder if King was uh, in, he probably had his first corgi by that point. The Counting um, Corgis, yeah. Which uh, I believe was named Bill. Something we learned recently Mm -hmm. during a round of trivia with the listeners. Um, Cool. Well, let's move on to a section we call Misery. She she died. She just slipped away.
5: Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. 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 You You murdered my misery. Annie.
3: Annie. Here in Misery, we discuss the stuff that made us miserable in this book, and uh, I think there's a handful of it. I'll kick us off. Um, I have to say that um, just the way that King writes... Like, I agree with the idea that uh, at least the black people in this book are not magical. But phrases like this just make me cringe a little bit. So this is on page 8. Um At the top on the western corner of Poplar and Bear Street is 251 Poplar. Brad Josephson is out front using the hose to water the flower beds beside the front path. He is 46 with gorgeous chocolate skin and a long sloping gut. Ellie Carver thinks he looks like Bill Cosby a little bit. Anyway, Brad and Belinda Josephson are the only black people on the block and the block is damn proud to have them. They look just like the way people in suburban Ohio like their black people to look. And it makes things just right to see them out and about. They're nice folks. Everyone likes the Josephsons. And I understand we're filtering this through the lens of, 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 uh, Ellie, who is a child here, but I do think that there is, it's is—it's—it's just really hard for King to write about uh, black people in this book, specifically them, without it coming across as kind of weird. <laughs> like, he just kind of emphasizes certain things in really aggressive ways um, and he basically can't mention either of them without mentioning the fact that their skin is black. <laughs>
5: so... Yeah.
6: I don't <laughs> it... think he's aware of his bias.
3: Yeah. yeah.
6: He's, he's kind of othering Often in this book.
3: Yeah. And it just, it makes me cringe a lot. It's something I think that didn't bother me when I was young, similar to uh, the autism. But now that I'm older, I'm kind of like, that's just a little bit cringy. So um, yeah yeah um other I, oh go ahead jen well
1: i was gonna say in some of my because mine was an abridgment the audio that some of that is what they cut out like i would notice a sentence about like belinda uh, talking about the black experience like mm. the sentence in that paragraph was not in the audible book so i wonder if somebody was reading i was like I don't hey steve you mind that. if we cut
3: these lines <laughs> yeah. maybe even steve went through and he's like oh that doesn't hold up um, yeah the
1: prince of south africa i think is not in my audible version either,
4: <laughs> which was like Oof. um We already, I've referenced this many times because it's my least favorite part of the book, but the whole, the grossness of, um, and maybe that's actually for some people that would be a a plus because it is a really vivid depiction of, of filth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess there's just part of me, it would really disturb me to be in that environment and I maybe didn't need it described in quite the way detail it was as many times as it was. Um, I think this is another place also where King is really proud of himself as far as like Tack wanting to leave when um, Seth shits. Yeah. Um, like he thinks like that's probably like a really like I mean that's the plot twist of the book. That's actually <laughs> Right. The thing that I I I actually remember from when I first read it thinking like really? Like this is like the big twist. Like this you're what you're planting here is the plot twist. Right. Like yeah. he, especially and, and, like,
6: given how comfortable he seems in filth it seems kind of odd that it's like oh that's what would trigger talk to like escape
4: mm-hmm. and it's like so bad people are upset by bodily functions like evil <laughs> 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 like that's sort of a funny thing like why would tac not be okay with shitting right
6: like, it, he seems more especially funny.
4: living in filth that was the other thing that i was like he, they're living in yeah. filth <laughs>
6: Right. It's like if he he was obsessive with cleaning and keeping everything pristine, then it would sort of make sense. But I'm kind of, yeah, again, it's like you got rotten Chef Boyardee here, dude. So I don't know, going to the bathroom is going (laughs) to be much worse. Um, I I think also in this, uh, the thing I didn't like just, I mean, I think we covered a lot in the other sections, but this book feels there's like a patchwork nature where I Mm -hmm. think a lot of ideas that King had kind of kicking around for a while, he just sort of threw them all into this. Um, Because there's a lot of directions where, yeah, I'm like, wait, this is what this book's about? Oh, wait, no, it's turning to this. And, you know, it feels like multiple, I I think Jen said, like, maybe this would work better as a short story. Like, I would have almost rather just seen the experience within the household for talk, you know, as a, whatever, less than 100 pages versus an entire novel with all these additional characters. Um, So, yeah, the misery for me, I guess, was just getting through the whole thing. I I appreciate it. (laughs) I like the twinning aspect, but the
3: misery was reading it. Yeah, it's just not—it's just not,
6: not my favorite
1: my big misery. Um, there, I remember reading this in high school and there were two things that I remember. And one is in my cemetery section and the other is in my misery. And it is the fact that Mary Jackson dies with her legs open. Mm -hmm. And we keep hearing about people talking about her not wearing underwear. There's a Willie Nelson joke that I do not appreciate. There's a, there's a bearded clam reference that Mm -hmm. is just, and it's just so slut shaming and so gross. And it, and that's the thing like I didn't remember anything about this character except the way she dies and that's the the Bachman I think coming out that we were talking about earlier really punishing his female characters and that's all we get, you know.
6: And doesn't and one guy the, save the, it for like the spank Yeah, bang, for kind
1: future of, consideration like, oh, yeah, like, or compensation. It's a dead woman, right? Yeah, it's a dead yeah. woman. Yeah. Like,
4: you know, <laughs> yeah, I actually also the, the jokes about it really bothered me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yes and i've referred to it earlier like he really has a distaste he slut shames actually and yeah, that mm-hmm. is the shorthand for it like king just does that all the time um and i think the fact that it's so humili- that hu- peter doesn't know and that's so humiliating for him yeah mm-hmm. is really kind of like
1: Well, and for him as her husband, not for her, because she's dead. So there's no way, like she's lost all agency, you know?
4: Right. And also the fact that she's having an affair is supposed to be just this utterly like, Mm -hmm. like Peter, oh, poor Peter, his wife is having an affair, like the cuckold sort of idea. Yeah. It makes it all about him. Right. Is it worse that she
1: was having an affair or that she died,
3: you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, along those lines, um, I mentioned this earlier, but it just kind of drove me crazy how much, like, in the middle of all... Like, this is near the end of the book. Like, everything's going on. Susie um, and her mom, Susie's the teen girl on the block, basically... You know they're in the midst of this firestorm. They're watching their friends die. Uh, this is when Kim, Susie's mother, gets really racist, and she says, "Susie, you get over here. We're going away from these hateful people." And then it says, "Susie turned her back on her mother, trembling all over." So she's taking this defiant stand against her mother. But then the narrative pivots so that Johnny can comment and say, "Johnny supposed this did not change his opinion of the girl as a shallow, flighty creature, but she seemed a link or two up the food chain from her mother at least." And that's just one of many things where. Where, like Susie is like is made fun of by multiple men in the book for being like upset and like crying and you know perhaps being shrill in the midst of a very uh horrible traumatizing bloody situation and it just seems so mean like these grown adult men piling on this teen girl who is in the midst of trauma it's just Mm -hmm. really bizarre for me and Mm -hmm. i remember it just standing out as like aggressively misogynistic so it's uh and i think that obviously ties to what you guys are saying about mary which is just um you know morbid in such like an unnecessary way, like, you know, this morbid humor, quote, unquote, that is so unnecessary. So it, it's it's a very, and again, it, it speaks to the idea that this is just a very mean and ugly book, which it was intentional, but that doesn't necessarily make it, you know, edifying or artistic. So
4: I meant to mention this when we were talking about whether or not this book is about God, which uh-huh. is that he does do his um, almost, you know, required in every book swipe at fundamentalists. <laughs> yeah, um, yep. which he never, it's so ham-fisted, like every time, you know, he, he, he talk about like disrespect, like he never seems to grant the idea that these people may have a sincere relationship with God mm. or that there may be something in their lives that like this, com- this is a wholesome or not, or, or whatever. He always portrays them as cynical, always portrays them as like bigots of, of, of some sort. And they're just really, yeah. yeah. Know.
3: You're
4: talking about like, the Hortons, the family? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I probably will have more to say about that in our next crossover episode. But I like when we were talking about not having a villain in the 90s. um, There's no counterbalance. Like I think the the real villain or the real counterbalance is like self reflection, you know. And I think that he's just really highlighting these characters' inability to do that. But it is very broad and very like judgmental the way that it rolls out you
6: know yeah I'll say one that it's I also love it but I also hate it <laughs> uh is I forget who it is but it's chapter 11 but they say uh my mom was having a cow a rather large one <laughs> I was a huge Simpsons fan and also in the 90s where it's like everything's like you know the Simpsons was the coolest and mm-hmm. I love pop culture references sometimes I also hate them but I don't know it's just that's the part that I laughed out loud I was like I can't believe I've never heard anyone say having a cow and mean it other than Bart Simpson, <laughs> Bart Simpson. Right.
1: and rather a large one A rather large cow sure, she's having. You know. the thing that one of the things that I did not like also is all of the shit and we talked about how that is yeah. a plot point and so that leads itself to just being present which I don't like there's a <laughs> and it's hard for me to forget about that as I'm reading the rest of the scene like this really sweet moment with Audrey and Seth at the end like he has mentioned he's covered in shit and mm-hmm. it's just really hard for me to forget that. And there's a scene in, um, the second dark tower book, um, where a character is naked the whole time. And yeah. it's just really hard for me to get that idea out of my mind. And this was another one. I was like, I don't need all this shit talk. Figure something <laughs> <Dan> else <laughs> Dan out. Dan
6: Caffrey loves the pee pee and the poo poo. So <laughs> sure well,
1: I apologize it. to Dan, but It's not quite for me. Oh, and there's a moment at the end where Cynthia is yelling at, um, cammy who's just killed them and she's like saying this is it's not gonna bring your son back didn't you go to school like, i what know the fuck is that?
3: <laughs> it's so weird yeah. all right uh That's let's, all mine. <laughs> yeah let's cleanse our palates a little bit uh in a little section we call word processor of the gods and we're gonna make a new rule remember i'm in here you hear me typing whether you don't hear me typing, what the fuck you hear me doing in here? When I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine.
5: Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here?
3: Here in Word Processor, we read some of the better bits of prose. We read stuff that we enjoyed, that we thought was a, a, a bit of good writing. And so I guess in this one, the, the good section stood out to me a little bit more because there wasn't a lot of um, beautiful writing in this one. But and, I, and even some of the writing I have isn't beautiful, but m- perhaps striking. I thought this section where Peter, uh, page 195 of my Signet Edition, Peter is holding his uh, dead wife. Um, in his arms. And I think this paragraph does a great job of depicting sort of the chaos that is erupting all around them, uh, like with a moment of stillness at the center of it, and also just playing up the idea of how fast this all happened. And um, so yeah, I'm going to read this. On the lawn of Old Doc's house, Peter Jackson stands with his wife in his arms, woundless at the center of the firestorm. He sees the vans with their dark glass and futuristic contours. He sees the shotgun barrels, their muzzles belching fire, and between the silvery one and the red one, he can see Gary Soderson's old shitbox saw burning in the Soderson driveway. None of it makes much. None of it makes much of an impression on him. He is thinking about how he just got home from work. That seems like a very big deal to him for some reason. He thinks he will begin every account of this. T- terrible afternoon it has not occurred to him that he may not survive this terrible afternoon at least not yet by saying i just got home from work this phrase already has become a kind of magical structure inside his head a bridge back to the sane and orderly world which he assumed only an hour ago was his by right and would be for years and decades to come i just got home from work so i I enjoyed yeah I i love that section because it really just kind of uh grounds the action for a moment and allows these people to be humans in the midst of a of a violent supernatural event for just a moment. So, uh, yeah. Anybody else have a uh, you know moments of prose that perhaps stood out to them as positive?
4: I like that section too, and I want to say it's one of the few times where we get the sense that the author likes his characters or has sympathy for his characters. Like yeah. Something that I, I wrote. I mean, right away, like the way the book opens. For the most part, the contempt. Mm -hmm. for suburbia that just like drips like from from the prose like this I don't know like again that's sort of a theme with King he doesn't like that yeah um but there's weirdly one of my favorite sentences in the whole book and I think it's generally it's like a really cool sentence is um he's talking he's describing the street this is a long sentence Jesus actually know what it's one sentence I just realized this Oh my God, it's the whole... I'm going to read the whole paragraph because it is one sentence. (laughs) Go for it. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, It's the very first paragraph in the book. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. Summer's here, not just summer either, not this year, but the apotheosis of summer, the avatar of summer, you quoted some of this, the high green, perfect central Ohio summer, dead smash in the middle of July, white sun glaring out of that fabled, faded Levi's sky, the sound of kids hollering back and forth through the bare Street woods, at the top of the hill, the tink of Little League bats from the ball field on the other side of the woods, the sound of power mowers, the sound of muscle cars out on Highway 19, the sound of rollerblades on the cement sidewalks and smooth macadam of Poplar Street, the sound of radios, Cleveland Indians baseball, the rare day game competing with Tina Turner belting out nutbush bush city limits, the one that goes 25 is the speed limit, motorcycles are not allowed in it, and surrounding everything like an auditory edging of lace the soothing silky hiss of lawn sprinklers yeah that last part is just really beautiful writing yeah Mm -hmm. and true and very true feeling
3: he's always very good at setting up sort of the i don't know like the the place you know the town like the street whatever like he does that in needful things too and and in uh uh and also in different seasons, I believe. He's just very good at sort of establishing place and um, the little things that sort of make up what, you know, what makes a street special or something, or even a yard. The
4: auditory edging of lace is the thing that I... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
3: I love I, I I like that, that line,
6: too. Um, yeah, it's, there, he does a good job of setting up that sort of Americana feeling. You know, I, it reminds me of, like, the Sandlot or something. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it ever gets back to that point again, you know, it's it's familiar.
4: And then he dives into the contempt, like, right, the next paragraph. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, Fleer, did you have anything, any uh, good sections you wanted to share? Yeah, You actually got my
6: quote, but there's one that I like, um, going back to pop culture references, and it's more King paraphrasing, but... Uh, it says, "When there's no more room in hell," this artifact said, "the dead will walk the earth," which, of course, <laughs> is the tagline from *Dawn of the Dead* from George yeah. Romero. So, mm. I just always thought that's a great thing. And uh, yeah, the, when I was a little kid, you know, seeing hell was like a curse word, so it was just funny <laughs> to be like, "Oh, hell is full, so the dead are gonna walk the earth." Uh, yeah, the that's actually that I, a
3: pop culture reference that works, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the fact that
6: my one of my favorite quotes is pretty much something King didn't say speaks to how few <laughs> quotes in this book that I really enjoyed. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I've got one other one here that I really love. And this sort of overlaps with Cemetery for me a little bit, because one of the things I actually find really effective in this book is when the world begins to sort of resemble uh, like a child's drawing. Um, mm-hmm. and the idea that humans are existing within that is a creepy concept to me. I don't think he fully exploits it as, as well as, as he could have, but I think that general concept that things are manifesting in this world as they would in a child's mind. And that's really cool. So this is the section I thought perhaps, um, did it best, um, I believe it's Steve and Collie are walking through sort of the woods and they're transforming into the desert. So it's on 272 of my Signet book. Beyond the last few sane green trees was a broad expanse of whitish hardpan running through toward a troubled horizon of sawtooth mountain peaks. They had no shading or texture, no folds or outcrops or valleys. They were the dead black Crayola mountains of a child. The path didn't disappear, but widened out, became a kind of cartoon road. There was a half-buried wagon wheel on the left. Beyond it was a stony ravine filled with shadows. On the right was a sign, black letters on bleached white board. To the Ponderosa, it said. The signpost was topped with a cow skull as misshapen as the cacti. Beyond the sign, the road ran straight to the horizon in an artificially diminishing perspective that made Steve think of of movie posters for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There were already stars in the sky above the mountains, impossible stars that were much too big. They didn't seem to twinkle, but to blink on and off like Christmas tree lights. The howls rose again, this time not a trio or a quartet, but a whole choir. Not from the foothills, there were no foothills, just flat white desert, green blobs. Of cactus, the road, the ravine, and in the distance, the shark tooth necklace of the mountains. So I just think that's like a really, I don't know, beguiling and disarming sort of uh, moment for these characters to watch the world around them like completely lack all texture and just become these uh, these kind of grotesque shapes, you know. And uh, I don't know, that was one of the aspects of the book I thought was the most imaginative and so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, any other, uh, sections we want to share?
1: I have two. That Bring them. Li- and sure, yeah. short, but they're, they're kind of like on the one you were read. They're about the street. And I loved that this whole thing played out as a storm was happening. Cause I yeah. just, weather fascinates me. So on two, two, on 71, not 271, 71, um, the stormy sky is coming apart, starting to release its cold reservoir. You see spots darkening all over the sidewalk, Feels drops hitting the back of his neck in an increasing tempo. I've really loved that depiction of it starting to storm. Yeah. And then again on 245, he's talking about the street as it's becoming more sinister Um, on Poplar street, the sun was starting to go down. It was too early for it to be going down, but it was just the same. It glared above the horizon in the West, like a baleful red eye turning the puddles in the street and the driveways and on top of the stoops to fire. It turned broken glass, which littered the block into embers, which I just thought was really, uh, like, really pretty and ominous in a really cool way.
3: Yeah, I love that.
1: I, I also had the section, I'm not going to read it, but where Seth is, not Seth, Ralphie is talking about, like, my hero wasn't there, right? Like, it mm-hmm. wasn't Major Pike, like, that that really got me, and the, the yeah. kid with Shoeless Joe, you know, I liked that.
3: Yeah, I like that, too. I remember that moment now because just the general idea that those characters are still real or, like, actually real yeah. to him and mm-hmm. the idea that they would be bad guys is, like, I, I almost wish he would have he would have pushed that a little bit further, you know? Mm-hmm. So, cool. All right, let's pop on over to our next section. Uh, it's called The Cemetery.
5: What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all.
3: Here in the cemetery, we talk about what spooked us, what made us, uh, what made us uh, shiver our timbers. Uh, does anybody have anything that comes straight to mind? I've got a few myself. I actually found aspects of this book pretty unnerving. But um, yeah, Jen, do you have one?
1: oh yeah, the honey. That was the thing. That was the other thing that I remembered from this book that just being so upsetting and like in a bizarre way, I'd never thought about that being a way that you could die or Mm -hmm. be hurt. And just how like demeaning it was to be forced to do that to yourself. And then talking about it being like a heavy weight in her stomach just really, really
4: creeped me out.
3: Yeah, that section really disturbed me. I have that one written down as well.
4: The part of me that also was very disturbing for me. And it, I did have this, you know, intrusive thought about how did King come up with that? Like, mm-hmm. uh uh-huh. sometimes like you can see his thought process for the different kinds of scary things that he, what he, he does. They're often riffs on what you, if you went some, I can't have quite articulate it, but they're often kind of like almost riffs on what somebody would think anyone would think like as, as that could be an accident or something like a car coming to life is not like out of the box, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. idea, but that one seems kind of out of the box in a really creepy way. Um, and the other thing I would say is that it has to do with his best writing I- in the book, which is the the street descriptions and this, in the descriptions of when um, suburbia turns, um, much like the, in desperation when, um, who i see my n- names are just i'm never gonna <laughs> i'm already bad with names and then this mm-hmm. book is just gonna do me in but when they get yeah. pulled over by collie yep the whole that the, the scene you read is almost like the one where mary right yep is mary the, and peter i think mary and peter were mary and peter um where she has that thing about this is not my life this mm-hmm. is not like wait how can this be happening to me yeah like the how can this be happening to me I think is it sort of at the at the core of why Stephen King is so frightening. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that. It's how why me? Why is this happening? Why me? Why me? Why me? This shouldn't be happening to me. Um, and it, it I think gets it. Yeah, um, a lot of what he what he does well.
3: Yeah, so I agree with that.
6: Yeah, um, I, th- I think the uh, drive-bys were the scariest part for me. Um, mm. Just the idea of being shot at, and not fully understanding what's going on and just like being trapped in the house. And I liked when the kids were like, well, I think we, or again, I'm having trouble with the character names. They're like, we can escape out back. And it's that idea. I mean, growing up, I would have like dreams about that. Like, could I outrun someone if they were chasing me with a gun? So seeing the kids run and just, again, you just picture these vans riding around and I don't know, that was just scary to me.
3: Well, the fact mm-hmm. that Carrie, like, the first one that's killed is, like, this 13-year-old kid, like, yeah. that's really shocking, you know? And it mm-hmm. just pulls up right next to him, out come the gun, and just blows this kid away right there. Um, is, is, it's such a disturbing way to kick off the book. Um I've got the – there's a lot of deaths that I think are pretty disturbing here, but uh, the death of Pi, the mother of Ralphie and Ellen, is, is particularly gross and something that I think is uh, very cinematic. It's something that would play well, I think, on in a movie, but page 191 and 192 of my Signet edition – Another approaching drone, this one followed by a loud, unmusical clang, as one of the copper pots hanging by the stove is hammered into a hulk of twisted fragments and flying shrapnel. And Pi is suddenly just screaming. No words now, just screaming. Her hands are clapped to her face. Blood pours through her fingers and down her neck. Threads of copper litter the front of her miss button blouse. More copper is in her hair, and a large chunk quivers in the center of her forehead like the blade of a thrown knife. Uh... Uh, quills of copper bristle from her cheeks Her lips, her chin It's just very disturbing to me The idea of the exploding yeah. metal flying in someone's face And uh, this one's for yeah. deep listeners of the pod um, I didn't the, When I stumbled across this I I shrieked a little bit When I realized that one of the um, One of the Motocops has uh, An alien face with a bulging forehead Almond shaped eyes that are dark and huge And a mouth that isn't a mouth at all um but a kind of fleshy horn um that's the description of of one of the motocops and that to me is wildly disturbing as somebody who is very scared of alien faces uh we've discussed this on multiple episodes of the pod uh loser mel castle loves to prod me endlessly about my fear (laughs) of alien faces so the fact that one of them has an alien face to me is uh particularly disturbing um any other uh, bits of cemetery, bits of um, horror that stood out to you?
1: I had um, Pie's death, too, but I had a little later when her kids are watching it. Like that Ooh. just really upset me when she's like convulsing and talking about like a humming sound in the back of her throat or something. Yeah. Um, and then I had one that's really quick. Oh, also when they pick the girl's face up and it's like mm. gone and it's like her teeth
3: are there. Yeah, that's fucked up.
1: But I think the one that really bothered me aside from the honey was also about talk and Audrey and it's on page one twenty talking what it would what it felt like having talk inside her head. She felt talk crawling inside her head, taking control, and although she saw it all and felt it all, she couldn't even scream and that just yeah really is upsetting, you know it reminds me of Wolf Creek, like a moment in that movie mm-hmm.
5: yeah.
3: that I won't
1: spoil
5: but. <laughs>
3: um i want to read when peter uh uh his final peter's final moments here i always thought this is what i remember most from my read as a child was this image here so he basically wanders into the you know child desert and um uh let's see here he says oh and he finds like the body of that um hobo or whatever that attack initially used to like drain power from and he sits next to it and he says "hello friend," he said. He moved the bum shopping cart so he could sit down beside him. As he settled against the cactus spines, feeling them slide into his back, he heard a cry and a gunshot and an agonized howl all from far away. Not important. He put his head on the dead bum's shoulder. Their grins were identical. Hello, friend, the erstwhile James Dickey scholar said again. He looked south. His remaining sight was almost gone, but there was enough left for him to see the perfectly round moon rising between the fangs of the Black Crayola Mountains. It was as silver as the back of an old-time pocket watch, and upon it was the smiling, one-eye-winked face of Mr. Moon from a child's book of Mother Goose rhymes. Only this version of Mr. Moon appeared to be wearing a cowboy hat. Hello, friend, Peter said to it and settled back further against the cactus. He did not feel the exaggerated spines that punctured his lungs or the first trickles of blood that seeped out of his grinning mouth. He was with his friend. He was with his friend and now everything was all right. They were looking at Mr. Cowpoke Moon and everything was all right. Just genuinely disturbing and really fucked me up when I was a kid. Um, The idea of the moon having a face has always been something that uh fascinates me especially because you know there's the whole man in the moon kind of thing when you look at it you can see facial features and that always scared me as a kid and so whenever anybody sort of um anthropomorphize uh, i can't speak yeah. uh the moon it always freaks me out a little bit so um any other bits of cemetery before we uh eat some pound cake like it was so much chef boyardee <laughs> all right yeah. Cool. Let's uh, gorge ourselves on some pound cake. After all you've been talking
5: everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray, ask to be forgiven.
3: He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. Here in pound cake, we talk about the uh, stuff that made us laugh, perhaps in unintended ways. Um, there is a lot of, uh, and also I'd say just. In this one, just general inappropriateness. <laughs> so we already talked about. Uh, I think in, there's a lot of crossover between misery and pound cake in this one. We've already touched on some of it. I have poop written down at least thirteen times here. And uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, does anybody have any pound cake that they want to share?
1: A lot of my pound cake was misery.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, my my one one of mine was one Jen already mentioned about the masturbating in the bathroom. Um, I don't think he knows how women masturbate. Yeah. <laughs> There's a part of, part of me that's like. Just,
6: Furiously? Yeah. That's what it, the impression yeah. I get. I, I literally, like... my note says Seth, mom, furious, masturbate. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think The Bearded Clam was another one.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
6: it's, I don't know. Yeah. There's a weird tie yeah. between sex and violence in this book that, mm-hmm. you know, when, when people get in these life and death situations, they're not horny. <laughs> They're right. not horny. They are,
4: these <laughs> yeah, I didn't, the part of what makes the the um, Audrey masturbating thing weird is that I don't understand. Like he tries to make it like, well, of course, like there's all this weird energy flowing in the house. Of course, masturbation would be the thing you would do to get rid of it. And I'm like, I don't. Is that how that would
1: work? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well there's a moment too and i tried to find this but i couldn't i was just hearing it but um where the mother it's either kim or cammy at the end talks about how the the feeling of maternal like need from her son combined with all the tragedy led her to be horny for the first time in her whole life i was like what the fuck is that yeah (laughs) she's a kid come from (laughs) exactly like what's going on here
3: (laughs) but um I've got plenty of poop talk here, but um, oh, here we go. Um, I think you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned this earlier, Jen, but I just thought the the phrasing was really funny. Uh, tax place, tax time, page 452, 453. In the bathroom of, adjacent to the kitchen, it can hear the boy. The boy is making the low piggy grunting sounds Tack has come to associate with its elimination function. For Tack, even the sounds are revolting, and the act itself, with its cramping and its sensations of sliding, helpless exit, is hideous. Even vomiting is better. It's quick at least, up the throat and gone but i think i i audibly laughed uh when i hit sliding helpless exit is a very very funny way to describe pooping um yep. and then uh, it's not
4: actually it's not i don't think it's a bad way to describe no it. it's just funny. i think it's it's good it's right. like a good description but come on guy like, yeah. like <laughs> no thank you yeah, yeah
3: I've, I've also got um I I just thought that the pinching seemed unnecessary. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, uh... The pain had been worse on other occasions, not to mention the crappy little humil- humiliations. Tack was an artist when it came to those, but there was a clear sexual aspect to the nipple oh. pinching. And there was the way she was dressed or undressed. More and more Tack was making her take her clothes off when it was angry with her or just bored. As if it or Seth or both of them sometimes saw her as its own private gatefold version of the tough but unreminti- unremittingly wholesome Cassie styles. Hey, kids, check out the tits on your favorite motocop so um that -hmm. was another one just a lot of uh yeah go ahead i I
6: kept thinking of like the south park when mel gibson when he keeps pinching his nipples and he's like oh it feels so good and (laughs) that's the (laughs) voice i heard with Tac whenever i heard
3: um yeah and i feel like i have one other one here um did you guys have any others i
1: found two that i won't read the whole thing but there's the phrase um Making an overcooked noodle hard and <laughs> snuggling up to his boner. I like,
5: oh, sorry,
3: mm, I don't know why that
6: cracked me up so much.
3: No, no. <laughs> it's
6: like- knocked my mic over laughing.
3: <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of others here. Just general. Like, basically, the word pussy and the word poop, like, are just all over this book, and in ways that feels uh, relatively unnecessary. I also just thought it was weird when uh, Ellie walks into the um, uh, uh, gas station right at the beginning of the book, and the first thing is she's 11 years old but she's gonna grow up to be a real beauty and that just it's always gross to me even though it's framed through cynthia's perspective i just think it's a little bit weird so uh yeah um i think we're all feeling a little bit dirty and overstuffed so why don't we walk it off in a section we call king's dominion
0: there's another world out there i know there is
3: So in King's Dominion, we talk about relationships to larger uh, uh, places in, uh, or in basically the grander world of Stephen King. Uh, I have a couple here. Did you guys get any, or are they mostly just desperation related? I got some. Okay, good.
4: Well, I mean, do we count smiley smile references since they're in desperation too, but- Sure, why not? There is a smiley smile t-shirt on 31, and then and mentioned a couple times, and then there's actually there's a car. Oh, ka, is there a ka? He he does like a t- something like time is a wheel.
3: Ah. In hey. Here
4: at some point there's like we are all on the wheel. I mean it's maybe room 237, but I don't <laughs> think so. Okay, so Haas had been one of Seth's favorites before Tack came to stay inside him, and so now he was one of Tack's favorites too. They rolled that way like a wheel.
3: Mm, so there it is. I don't know if
4: that was intentional or not, but it felt a little intentional to me.
3: Um, I've got maybe a Room 237, but on page 240 of my version, there is a reference to uh, an author named Leon Uris, U-R-I-S, uh, mm. perhaps relation to Stan Uris of It, um, <laughs> chapter one and two. So <laughs> just uh,
4: King's inability to come up with new <laughs>
3: <questions>. New names. <laughs> I always assume yeah. they're connected. Uh, Jen, mm-hmm. what do you have?
1: um okay well the big one that i found was probably not a direct um connection but i looked at this as like um talk and seth's relationship is kind of what the overlook wanted to do to danny torrance like thinking about him like building things and using his ability and kind of this like evil marriage of a kid with special um not special needs special abilities being kind of invaded by an evil force and used to do grander things which i Mm -hmm. thought was really cool um don't think don't like how it's handled you know reference what i said earlier but that's kind of the connection that i saw um and there's also an element of being inside someone's head and pulling switches and levers which is something that i think Mm. comes up in the dark tower um like kind of in later episodes or (laughs) books
3: Yeah, there's similar, it's not the exact same, but that's similar to Dreamcatcher a little bit as well. Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
6: I I found out another, along those lines, um, I can't remember which character references, uh, might be Seth's mother, but she says the government institution that studies special children, and that's literally Mm -hmm. what the institute, the plot is about. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Another one was from *Wizard and Glass, the uh, big coffin hunters. The townsfolk in Hambry refer to them as the regulators sometimes.
3: Oh, Uh I didn't didn't catch that at all. I'm about to read that book, though, so I'll keep an eye out for that. Um, That's good. I also have, this is just kind of classic King, uh, on page 123. Don't, Dave said said in a conspirator's hoarse whisper, his Adam's apple went up and down in his throat like something in a slot. Usually, uh, the Adam's apple goes up and down like a monkey on a stick, uh, but that is a favorite of King's, but here it is something in a slot, so um, I think the monkey works better. Um, And then, obviously, we have the direct reference to Stephen King's The Shining in uh, the epilogue. There is a direct reference to that book, uh, which is a cheeky little moment there. I think he used to only do that in Bachman books, and now he just does it in his own books, so...
1: (laughs) In that, there's also the reference of other planes, you know, living on yep. a different plane of existence, which I thought was interesting. Um, I also, there's the Hummel figures, which are the figurines, which is um, Annie Wilkes has a Hummel figure that's a little penguin. And then there's also a point where um, Hank, they talk about him pulling out his lower lip and twisting it till it bleeds. Mm. And Annie Wilkes does that to herself in Misery. Oh, interesting. Which I think, given that this, I think Misery was originally going to be a Bachman book. And there's like the themes of abuse there, I think, was right. an interesting tie. There's also a moment where they talk about Seth on page 159. Seth floats like a boy-shaped balloon. Which is
3: mm, cool. I like that one. Uh, any others we have before we move on?
1: Alan Sime's dies on September 19th. Oh,
6: oh right, oh, yeah. I remember catching
3: that, too. That's fun. Always a good 19 in there. Uh, <laughs> right. Cool. All right. Let's move on to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah,
5: we've been ready for an hour. Okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets
3: like that when he's
5: writing.
3: Welcome to Final Thoughts. This is where we share our bright red Pennywise Clown Nose rankings on this book, as well as our capsule review and why not do an mvp i'm kind of into the mvp idea these days jen why why don't you share your uh your review your columnist rating and your mvp for the book
1: all right um i think overall i think i like both of these books in connection to each other rather than i'm like either of them individually um i do there are things that i really really like about this book um that are really evenly balanced with the things i really really don't like so i think um but like I said at the beginning, it allows me to remove the emotion from the themes I think he's trying to get at in Desperation, which makes it easier for me to read. Um, so I think i will probably going to go two and a half mm-hmm. bright red Pennywise clown noses on this. And I think my MVP is going to be Poplar Street because the times that I really liked is when he was describing the scenery. I don't yeah. know if that counts, but.
3: it ah, yeah. counts. Uh, for you, Jen, anything counts. Uh, oh. <laughs> Dan Flieger, share your bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking, your MVP, and your review. Um,
6: yeah, I kind of I agree with what Jen said. I mean, you need that binary star of the two books working together. This one taking alone, though, just to review it, um, it does feel like a Twilight Zone episode. I think this mm-hmm. would work better as a short story. There's just a lot of ideas that get thrown up here. I don't know that a lot of them are fully realized. I like seeing more about Tac but he seems a lot more childish than the mm-hmm. other version in Desperation, which I have a lot of thoughts for the next episode. Um, taken on its own, I'm going to give this two bright red Pennywise clown noses. And honestly, the MVP for me is the cover art. I, <laughs> I just like the way the two books go together. I, I actually looked it up. I think I shared it on the Discord, but King was promoting this on David Letterman. And there's a cool shot of David Letterman holding both books up that I had to screen grab because I was just like, oh, I love this. I just when I used to not have as many King books, I would proudly display these on my bookshelf with the art lined up. uh-huh, Um, but now there's just no room here in Chicago, so
3: <laughs> Cool. And then your uh M V P. Oh wait, you already said it. Oh, I'm yeah, dumb. Booksh- you it was the books. Yeah. Uh Anna, please share your bright red, pennywise, clown nose rating and your MVP.
4: Oh god. I'm gonna give it one bright red bright red pennywise <laughs> clown nose. Um it it might be my I don't know. I guess there's probably another King book I like less. Um, but you could not read this book, and that would be fine. <laughs> you know, like, as a King fan, like, you're not really missing a whole lot. It doesn't fill any, like, holes in, like, the King's dominion. There's no, like, thing that you'll, like, I don't know. There's just no thing that you would miss in his other stuff, for instance, mm-hmm. by not reading this. Yeah. Um and then MVP, I think, I mean, it's so telling that the, uh, the two of y'all chose non-characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's really hard. Like, the, I mean, I, the, of all of the actual characters in the book, the one I enjoy spending time with is Johnny, but mm-hmm. who is my MVP for Desperation, but I think that's a little bit of a hangover from Desperation. Ha <laughs> hangover is a word. <laughs> um... In a little bit, just because he's clearly one of the characters that King genuinely has affection for. Yeah. I think that I would go, it's so funny. Yeah, the scenery is in many ways, like, the best part of this book, both in the depiction of suburbia and in the depiction of suburbia becoming a child's depiction of the Old West. Yeah. Like, those are the two, like, that's, like, the coolest part of the book, and... Again, like, God, why didn't someone edit this? <laughs> um, <laughs> why? Yeah, yeah um, that, that
3: dovetails into my review, I think, too, is yeah. is I just feel like this this book is so, it needed an editor, it needed more time. And I think, because I don't know, when I just think about this in sort of an anecdotal way, I think about, like, that he, had, he started writing this the day after he finished Desperation. He told his publisher, I've got this great idea. We're going to release them at the same time. But the thing is, like, They probably wanted to release Desperation relatively soon. So I have a feeling he wrote this book pretty quickly to sort of do the gimmick, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I just get the vibe that he usually spends like a year, two years on his books, if not longer. And uh, But he's usually working on many simultaneously, which is why we get so many. But this feels like one where it just like you know shat right out of him and Mm -hmm. uh and i it just feels to me like it was a catharsis book and that is cool in some way because there's a propulsive aspect of this book that i think is appealing and interesting and there are a lot of cool ideas in here but none of them feels like it reached its end conclusion like its end place where it really would have been satisfying and and coalesced into a story into an identifiable theme that feels uh purposeful and resonant it's like nothing in it quite lands like it should and I think that's where I struggle with it is I just feel like there's a lot of untapped potential here. But also I think mm-hmm. the general sense that he really dislikes most of these people doesn't make it a pleasurable read. And that to me, because i that's the thing, is like King always has affection for his characters. And I think for listeners to this podcast and for us, that's what we like is that it's like, you know, sometimes we make fun of King for like, okay, here's 30 pages about a character you'll never see again, you know? But that's also part of his charm is that he really does like to build out complex and uh nuanced inner lives for most of his characters we don't get that here and that is Mm -hmm. frustrating so we just get this general sneering sense of um of uh condescension and uh disdain so so i think that's where i struggle but at the same time this when this i think this book is actually at least in terms of things that scare me i actually think this book is is pretty spooky at times because the the uncanny quality of the child's drawing manifesting in the real world is something that really works for me which is why my MVP is going to be Mr. Cowpoke Moon uh, because I love <laughs> that section and it sort of represents to me the that aspect of the child's drawing manifesting in the real world. It's it's a cool idea and that section with Peter where he's leaning against the cartoon spines and it's killing him It's and he's like completely, you know, his eyes are poking out of his head. It's a great grotesque image that has stuck with me you know since i first read this book and i can give it credit for that so i'm actually going to give it what jen gave it i'm going to give it two and a half bright red pennywise clown noses uh because i think those things at least for me go a long way so uh yeah so that's our review i think we average out probably around two Two. uh yeah
6: one of our lower ratings
3: yeah definitely one of our lower ratings which is not surprising um (laughs) uh the nice thing is i think we'll be in a much more positive mood with our next book wizard and glass i think most of us are fans of that one so uh and yeah and then um and i'll also say uh trying to think of what else is on the docket We've got a commentary for Christine coming up. We've got In the Mouth of Madness, uh, a Crate episode on that movie, which is kind of an underrated uh, movie. I think it's really enjoyable. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, lots of other fun stuff. So please, um, you know, follow us on our socials if you don't already. Uh, If you are not a Patreon subscriber, we'd love to have you. You can find us at patreon.com slash the barons. We've got all kinds of fun episodes and, uh, you know, monthly hangouts with us and with our listeners, which is also a great aspect. We have a great active, um you know really fun discord channel as well and um yeah where else can we find you guys uh, Jen where can people find you
1: well you can find me at um, also the psychoanalysis podcast um we are in the middle of March which we are looking at schizophrenia this month and we started with hereditary and we're going to conclude that with they look like people and then in the midst of all of that really heavy talk we're going to have some comfort horror episodes on um one Cut of the Dead, which was so much mm. fun. Still never and then seen not. Oh, oh my gosh, it's so good. Go in completely blind. Um, and then we're going to close off March with the Comfort help Horror episode on uh, Children of the Corn. So oh, that'll shit. be fun. Crossover. So, to
4: I know. <laughs> but, uh,
3: great. And then, uh, Anna, where can we find you?
4: I have a politics and sort of culture commentary podcast, I guess, called uh, With Friends Like These uh, that. Who knows if you'll enjoy it if you're listening to this, but you might give it a try. It's and if you are listening to this, thank you very much. Um, and if you are listening to this, you'll probably like my other genre podcast, which is called Space the Nation, uh, which I do with an international relations professor. And we talk about kind of the politics in sci-fi, not like transporting politics of today onto it.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and then I'm on, I'm at Anna Marie Cox. You can find out more about Space the Nation at Patreon dot com slash space the nation and i want to say speaking of crossovers jen and i have been talking about doing some crossover stuff i want her to come on our on space the nation to talk about trauma and Mm -hmm. sci-fi and
1: i want Anna to come do a comfort horror episode hell yeah so
4: love it (laughs)
3: losers love crossovers (laughs) that's right (laughs) we do love it and uh fleer where can we find you um, uh,
6: no crossovers for me, sadly. Uh, no, I, I occasionally appear on Halloweenies. Uh, Dan Flieger on most socials. Uh, keep wearing your mask, folks. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh,
3: double and- it if you want. It's no shame. Double it no up. Shame, you won't-
6: We're almost there, but just finish strong, folks.
3: Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, and you can find me at Randall Colburn on most socials and uh, yeah. And here on the losers club podcast and, um, and various writings on the internet.com. So thank you all so much for listening. This has been a fun episode. Shall we sign off with a long day? Long days. And, days. and pleasant, pleasant night.
5: I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. I got some hot.